WAPG Airline Pilot Guy Airline Pilot Guy Episode 287 Listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1A in the APG Headquarters building in Roswell, Georgia. In this episode, a pilot freaks out passengers, an Airbus A320 hits a balloon tether, hell in Houston, and an airline that promises that its flight attendants will remain fully clothed. Feedback and the latest plane tails installment plane tails installment but sir harriers don't actually hover so get all settled in tray tables and seatbacks in their upright and locked positions electronic devices powered on flight 287 is ready for pushback hello everyone and welcome to the airline pilot guys show an aviation podcast probably the most professional one out there and serious no wait a minute I'm thinking of a different show. Uh, this one is about aviation. Yeah, we focus mainly on uh, airline aviation, but we talk about other things as well. And uh, the reason why we focus on that is because many of us, uh, this is what we do for a living. Uh, we're airline pilots, except for the lovely Dr. Steph. So I'm an, a, a captain for a major U.S. legacy airline and joined by, speaking of Dr. Steph, we have a... Doctor of Physiatry. Doctor. 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 A Doctor. skydiver. Doctor. Marathon runner. Doctor. And World 20, Miss World 2017 swimsuit winner. <laughs> wow. And commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot. Of course, that's the most important part. Dr. Steph. Took that a title to a new level there, huh? <laughs> yeah. All right. Interesting. Guess I should start doing more uh, sit-ups and crunches and things if I got to carry on that. No, title. no, you don't need to. Uh, <laughs> yes. No, thank you for the lovely introduction as always. And so pleased to be back with you guys for episode 287. Oh, I almost forgot which one it was too. Great to see you. And also joining us from across the pond. And he's actually across the pond today. Uh, he is a former RAF and RAAF fighter pilot and professional photographer, a wide-body Airbus captain for a European carrier. His name, Captain Nick Anderson. Hi there, Jeff, and uh, hi, Steph. Can't wait to see your uh, issue of Sports Illustrated. Um, here I am, yeah, and uh, the beard is slowly growing back. Can you see it? Yeah, it looks good. Yep. Yeah, come on there. Very nice. there. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, fabulous to be back on the show. Thanks very much. It's uh, uh, quarter past 10 in the evening here. So uh, hoping for a nice long one because I don't want to go to bed. This is too much fun. Actually, we're glad that you were able to stay up with us. And uh, hello again from across the pond. And uh, look forward to discussing all of this great stuff on our show today. So, um Let's see. I guess we can start off with uh, what has been happening with all of us. Uh, Captain Nick, would you like to start? 
Uh, yeah, sure. I'd love to. Um, I, I have had a week uh, at home, so uh, not much uh, really at all. I've uh, been doing family stuff, uh, been catching up on uh, the social media side of things, uh, uh, been communicating with Landon, who's organizing an event in uh, um, San Francisco. In fact, not exactly San Francisco, in Santa Cruz, uh, on my next trip, which will be on Friday. I'll be out uh, in San Fran on uh, Saturday and a little bit of Sunday. So that's coming up. Uh, other than that, the weather here has been gorgeous. It's starting to break. Unfortunately, low pressure is arriving from over the Atlantic. Why is it you guys send us all your used weather? I don't know. Anyway, it'll be it. here. Keep yeah. it. Thanks very much. We don't want it. It's going to be 10 degrees cooler tomorrow. And it has been quite nice, so we're not really looking forward to all the rain that's coming. Well, you know, here in the southeastern United States, uh, this time of year, it's it's still very hot. So. Yeah, I know that. And one thing, I, though, I forgot to mention is that when it's raining tomorrow, I will be able to uh, dip into this book that uh, I just received uh, yesterday. And it was uh, from Robert Fairburn, who uh, is one of our Washington listeners, who sent me this. And uh, it's a fabulous book called uh, uh, Down for Double by uh, Lieutenant General uh, Gordon Graham. Now, he was a World War II uh, pilot uh, in the USAF. He flew uh, Mustangs, and uh, he carried on in the United States Air Force and flew in, uh, I'm guessing, I haven't read too much of the book yet, but I'm guessing uh, all the way through up to the Vietnam War. And uh, he flew, of course, the Phantom, which one of my favorite airplanes. Uh, so I, I really uh, want to thank... Um, uh, indeed, uh, Robert, for sending that. It's very, very nice to get it, uh, particularly since this book has been signed by the author. Um, so uh, I'm really looking forward to reading that. Thank you very much indeed, Robert. That's awesome. Hey, I have a question for you. Yeah. Why is it that you guys pronounce uh, Lieutenant Lieutenant? I don't see an F in there. I'm just curious. I mean, I'm not. I'm not being critical i just no, noticed that um I, I did look it up once i suspect it's from the origin of the uh, word because it's not a british word it's probably a french word oh. and i don't know whether that has to do with it or whether we just uh, bastardized the pronunciation of it when we adopted it but uh, i like the way it sounds I, you know don't get me wrong it's just i just always wondered about that and i thought well this would be a good time to ask yeah, the question you, you <laughs> lieutenant but there's no double o in it so i don't know where you get that from well l-i-e-u is pronounced lieu well i know because we say r like captain pugwash yes well all right i'll see if i can find out while steph's having a chat Okay. Sounds See, good. the Canadians pronounce it that way, too. I'm not sure which way she's talking about, but Liz, <laughs> either the way that uh, that uh, uh, Nick does or the way we do, but uh, whatever. Okay. Lieutenant, lieutenant. No idea. Uh, I don't either. But uh, tomato, tomato, potato, potato, let's call the whole thing off. And potable. Uh, potable, potable. potable. <laughs> Although, in that case, not there's that only one, one correct potable. pronunciation. Potable. Thank you. All right. Dr. Steph. What yes. has uh, been happening with you? Oh, let's see. I did a lot of running this past weekend because I have a couple of marathon races coming up. In fact, one is just four weeks, just under four weeks away at this point. 
And I'll get to that a little bit more too. But so I did my 20 miler this past weekend. Mm, how'd that which, go? Eh, it was long. That's what she said. <laughs> oh. uh, That's what she said. I need to be faster with that. Sorry. And she, That's what she No, she said. wouldn't say that. <laughs> mm, she might. She oh, might. okay. <laughs> you never know. Yeah. M- moving but, on. Um, but the day before that, um, got my aviation related fix stuff in not actually flying the airplane but went and made a couple of skydives and had a couple really nice skydives it was fun to see all those folks down there and see some see some friends and it was a really beautiful day for it i mean i knew you said it's is it still hot in atlanta because it is not hot here at all it's i mean it's cooler but it's still warm today was like in the low 70s i don't know i haven't been outside actually really know you have no idea but anyway no. it's, it's been it's been cooler here noticeably cooler 82 um, right now yeah and you know that makes for really nice uh skydiving or flying conditions or whatever you'd like to go do today is a little more overcast but uh, that's all right i'll take it so it's been excellent. a good been a good week been a good weekend and yeah excellent okay um, the origin of lieutenant okay Shoot. Uh, it was originally from two Latin terms, locum, meaning in place of, and teneris, meaning holding. Together, the phrase applied to anyone holding in place of or someone else. Over the uh, over time, locum evolved into the French word lieu, which is pronounced in French as it is spelt. It is possible that when the English heard the French pronounce the compound word lieutenant, they perceived a slurring. It's probably because all the Frenchmen were drunk. <laughs> a lot of which wine. They, which they heard as a V or F sound between the first and second syllables. Most English, English-speaking nations, with the exception of the United States, still pronounce the word as though there is an F in it. So it's all about the F in French. <laughs> I like what you did with that. Thank yeah, you. Very clever. <laughs> Those F in French. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Oh, wait, you're, you're admitting that maybe we pronounce something closer to the... Uh, I think you do, yes. Wow. Score but, one for yeah. yeah. Oh, there you there go. go. You and the French. You're, <laughs> last you found something in common. <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay. we take it back. No, just kidding. <laughs> we love the, we love the French. We do. We love. We are the world. We love everyone. That's right. All right. Um, so let's see. I uh, let's see. When was it? Saturday. Uh, when did we record last week? Was it like Thursday? I think it was Thursday, right? No, Wednesday of last week, didn't we? Because uh, you were. Uh, it was straight after the eclipse one, so yeah. I think that was a Tuesday. We recorded it on a Wednesday, yeah. Yeah, Wednesday of last week. Well, on Saturday, uh, this past weekend, I got to meet up with some fine folks at the Scofflaw Brewing Company. Brewery, is it Brewing Company or Brewery? Well, it's one of those. Um, and uh, the website is scofflawbeer.com, and. I have a little bit of audio to play regarding that meetup. So here we go. If I can find the application that I use to play my jingles. Here we go. Hey, we're at the uh, Scofflaw Brewing Company. And uh, with a great group of folks here, uh, aviation enthusiasts and uh, beer lovers, which is probably the most important part of this. And I just wanted to do this before uh, Chris Cochran, right? Uh, was uh, he has he has to go because he has a couple uh, two and a half year old uh, twins that uh, need uh, daddy, 
And uh, I understand that. And But he was able to spend a couple hours here with us on this tour at the Scofflaw Brewing Company and uh, drink uh, maybe just like a couple ounces of beer. That's all, really. Honestly, that's all he had. Okay, so Chris. Uh, it was a pleasure uh, to meet Captain Jeff here and all the aviation enthusiasts here. And it's a fun time here at Scofflaw. And uh, good to meet up with everybody. That's it? That's all you're going to say? All right, that's good enough. All right. Here, this guy here is a 330 pilot for some other airline. Uh, we can't name it because, uh, well, liability and that kind of thing. Uh, his name is Jeff somebody. Yes, that's uh, Jeff Witt uh, at Hefe Jet uh, on Twitter. Give myself a little plug. Uh, it was very nice uh, meeting you. Yes, very nice meeting you, Captain Jeff, from First Officer Jeff. Yeah, pass it along. Hey everybody, Stephen Ivy. Um, yeah, just enjoying the uh, beer here at Scofflaw. Uh, glad everyone could come out to this. Um, sounds like we're going to make this a monthly thing for those that live in Atlanta. Going to hit a couple different breweries, and I think there's maybe twelve total in Atlanta. So we have one year of trying out breweries for the APG. So it sounds really good. Hi everybody, Dispatcher Tom here. No branding. Uh, you you know where to find me, and uh, we're definitely looking forward to more brewery trips with the uh, change in the brewery law in Georgia, so you don't have to buy a tour anymore. Uh, starting, I believe, September 1st, you can just go and have a beer at the breweries, so I look forward to seeing everybody sometime in the near future. And now we just got to figure out where to go to get the free food after we drink the free beer, right? Exactly. All right. So, yeah, we had a great time uh, on Saturday, August 20-something or other, 6th, here at the Scofflaw Brewing Company. Awesome beer, really it is. And uh, I believe that at least two of us, Stephen and myself, are going to be here in a couple of weeks for their, uh, well, a little bit more than a couple of weeks for their uh, first birthday. Uh, they have some really great beers that they're talking about uh, uh on the 16th, yeah. So uh, if you're in the Atlanta area, you're listening to my voice right now, plan on meeting up with us on uh, the 16th of uh, September at Scofla. And that's it. Over and out. There we go. So we had a great time. As you could tell, you could hear all the laughing in the background. And uh, actually, we sounded pretty coherent for the number of samples that we had consumed at that point. <laughs> we were just about to leave. and Hopefully had a they weren't. All pint samples. No, no, no. It was like uh, half pints. They gave you us. Have to, uh, what's this about? You have to buy a uh, brewery tour to. Yeah, I guess. I guess brewery? you got to. Uh, you know, buy a to uh, buy a tour and then it's get the weird free. alcohol laws in every state, aren't there? So. Yeah, but you know what? Mo what was interesting is in this brewery warehouse space, um, most of the people. I thought everybody there was there to go get the tour and. They were drinking, you know, before the tour started, and then it, it was just a handful of us, you know, the group that, that I was with, and then maybe another, I don't know, six or seven other people were uh, taken around the, the brewery and given the whole tour. But uh, most everybody else, I'd say 90% or more of the people that were there drinking were there just to drink. So gotcha. they, they had to buy the $14 tour, tour uh, fee. Gotcha. But they got free beer, you know. This, yeah. Well, anyway, that's not bad. They give you six uh, little coupon things for samples and you know when i say sample you know it was like a half a pint so you know, decent size sample and so what would that be Must basically three pints for three pints for 14 yeah so that's actually a pretty good deal that's not bad at all yeah mm -mm. and it was really good beer too and so i look forward to uh, 
going back there on their uh, first anniversary, and uh, they have some barrel-aged stuff that uh, probably is only going to last as long as the 16th to drink. So we'll see. Anyway, thank you, uh, Steve and Ivy, for kind of uh, taking up the organization of that uh, group meetup. And yeah, if you want to uh, get together and do an APG meetup somewhere out there, as uh, Dispatcher Mike said, I think he said something about grabbing the bull by the horns, and this is before inflatable on the uh, lake, <laughs> uh, and uh, organize something, uh, please do, as uh, I guess Landon has done uh, for the meetup out in Northern California this weekend, right? Uh, yes, he has, uh, as very kindly. Uh, Landon uh, is, has organized uh, a meetup um, for my next trip out to uh, San Francisco. So uh, we're going down to Santa Cruz, and we are going to the uh, Santa Cruz Mountain Brewing. So uh, it's uh, an orgasmic beer brewery in Santa wow. Cruz. Sounds. I might head out there oh, for that. I, know. <laughs> I might have mispronounced that. Sorry, an, an organic oh, beer oh. Okay. company in Santa a little, Cruz. A little different. They say an award-winning local Santa Cruz certified, or I can't say it properly now, <laughs> <laughs> organic brewery. Offering seasonal ales, hard ciders, and more. So that sounds actually brilliant. Thank you very much, indeed, Landon. Looking forward to seeing uh, whoever can make it down there. I know Fred's uh, going, uh, and obviously I'll be there, and uh, Landon will be there. So that's that's three. We'll be able to enjoy ourselves, even if no one else pitches up. But I'm really looking forward to that. So that'll that'll be on Saturday, the second of September, at four p.m. Kickoff. Awesome. And uh, I understand, Steph, that you're going to be involved in some kind of a meetup in Berlin. Yes, I want to make sure I mention that. Um, September 22nd, it's a Friday. So under, is that a month from now? I forget how many weeks away that is. Four weeks or so. Um, we're going to be having a meetup at uh, Private Pilot Tillman's uh, microbrewery, the Circus Microbrewery at the Circus Hostel. It's in Berlin. Um if you go to their website, uh, www.circus-berlin.de, and you can find all the directions there. Um, I believe we're going to be starting around 7 p.m. And come on out and join us if you happen to be in the area. I would give you the address, but I can't pronounce any of these German words. So um, best way to find that is to actually just go to the website or do a, go a Google search. So, mm -hmm. um, And don't forget, um, Nev is looking to meet up with somebody to buy him beer in uh, <laughs> Fairfax, Virginia, Dulles Airport. <laughs> so Fair enough. We don't want to forget about him either. Okay. Uh, let's see. Anything else? Oh, you know, I was I picked up a an extra trip uh, Sunday, Monday. Got back after, well, right around midnight last night. And uh, I got to remind myself how lovely it is to ride the employee crew transportation to the crew, uh, the uh, employee parking lot. And it's especially nice after midnight. And uh, let's see, what else was I going to say? Oh, I had picked up something for tonight, an overnight in Sarasota, and then back tomorrow afternoon. And when I arrived back in Atlanta last night, I looked at my messages on my phone, and it said, uh, hey, that uh, trip that you picked up, that two-day, uh, tomorrow night, it has been no opt. So uh, crew tracking decided to, uh, for whatever reason, not operate that rotation. So the cool thing about that is that 
because I had been awarded the trip and it was on my line and whether they fly it or not, they still have to pay me for it. So Woo-hoo. yeah, bonus, bing, bing. I should play my, oops. Definitely. I, I found the address of the Circus Hotel for you, Steph. Yes. Can you pronounce it's, it better than I can? Yeah. It's number one, Rosenthalerstrasse. So that's uh, 10119 in Berlin. So it's on the Rosenthaler Platz in the Mitt district. Better than I can do. So there, there you go. go. I was, I used to live there when I was six, although I think most of it's worn off now. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I was telling Jeff earlier that I used to live in Neunenfunzig Trabenestrasse. So that's about all I can remember of that. Haven't we all? Haven't we all? All right. Uh, so, oh, and then I, I have another trip later uh, this week on Thursday, uh, Friday, Saturday. And uh, the cool thing about that is that on Thursday I'll be in Raleigh-Durham. Actually, we stay at Chapel Hill at the Carolina Inn, and uh, that gives me uh, relatively close proximity to rent a car and drive over to Elon University, where my youngest is. So I get to meet up with my Natalie on Thursday. So I'm looking forward to that. And uh, that's it. You're all caught up. So now I think it's time for the coffee fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No, thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the RPG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. All right. While the telephone rings in the background, I'm going to continue with the coffee fund portion of the show here. The coffee fund, what is that? Well, that's your way to get even more involved in this outstanding APG community for those who have the financial resources to, to do so. And we call those folks the coffee fund cadre, and uh, they really do help offset the costs of uh, doing the show. So uh, since the last show, we've had, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five participants in the Coffee Fund Classic Method, basically via PayPal, where you can make a one-time donation or a recurring donation, as Chris Randall does. We received his recurring payment, as Steve Trumbull did as well. Uh, also, Derek Weisong and PR Guns, Ganopathy and Brandon Begley. So thank you one and all for your very generous contributions to the Coffee Fund using the Coffee Fund Classic Method. The other way that you can become involved in the show and the Coffee Fund Cadre is by becoming a patron at patreon.com and since the last show we have uh, Alex uh, he uh, is has made a pledge and Clinton Baker Alex Bresnik, I should mention his last name. And then Clinton uh, Baker is uh, one of our uh, producers, executive producers, that is. And uh, so we do appreciate that. And uh, Patreon is a way that you can pledge a certain amount per episode. And uh, you also, whether you're using the uh, Patreon method or the uh, classic uh, Coffee Fund method, you have access to a periodic uh, crew log, APG crew log, a little extra audio that we put out there and kind of give you some behind the scenes of what's going on with the APG show. So thanks again, everyone who has contributed 
If you want to do that, head over to AirlinePilotGuide.com slash coffee. Good timing, Jeff. Thank you. That's what she said. Stand by for viewers. Pilot freaks out passengers with horrific tornado warning. All right. Ladies and gentlemen. Buck, maybe I should do this. Ladies and gentlemen, buckle up for some tornadoes. <laughs> the pilot of a Newark-bound United flight delivering a chilling warning that kicked up a storm among his terrified passengers, according to the report. He announced that the flight which had already been delayed in Chicago two hours on Tuesday, would encounter terrible storms. Here's a quote from Pamela Kent, a Princeton resident who was traveling with her daughter, Jessica. He seemed angry. He said, we're going to be flying through, through horrific storms, including tornadoes. <laughs> Adding to the apocalyptic atmosphere, the pilot also instructed passengers on the overbooked flight to get to know your neighbors. <laughs> I don't think he asked them to start praying, though. Uh, as the guy did and uh, off of, uh, what was it, off of? Uh, oh, that Perth. was it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I Sorry. forgot what airline one that was. Anyway. Uh, the Asian Airlines. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Uh, the passengers were so terrified that a flight attendant made an announcement to try to allay fears blowing through the cabin, saying the pilot didn't mean it would be unsafe to fly. <laughs> uh, there were tornado warnings across Warren County in New Jersey and parts of Pennsylvania late Tuesday as heavy rain pummeled the mid-Atlantic region. In fact, I think this is about the time that you were coming into New York on your last trip, uh, Captain Nick. Uh, so there was some, you know, pretty uh, nasty weather heading that way. Yeah, there was a, a line of storms, but it wasn't vast. It wasn't like it was all-encompassing. No. Buckle up for tornadoes. <laughs> Come on. It's going to be horrific. Uh, let's see. When the plane finally prepared to taxi, the pilot got back on the intercom to notify the passengers that the plane had to return to the gate because of, of a maintenance issue. Right. That was the last straw for about 50 passengers who demanded to be let off to seek alternate ways to reach Newark. Um, let's see. Another uh, passenger said it was a general feeling of being rattled. Uh, you want a pilot to have confidence. That was not the feeling. Uh, by the time they got back to the gate, the crew timed out. And uh, <laughs> so I'm thinking... I don't know. You know, you know how these things are. This is a report from uh, what? Uh, the New York Post. New York Post. Dot com. Yeah. yeah. So um, it's hard to know exactly what was said on the PA because a lot of times you'll say something and then somebody hears it totally differently. But uh, if this is the case and this guy was making this kind of, uh, of, of a PA, well, that's inappropriate. You do want to be reassured when you hear our voices on the PA system. And you don't want to be rattled, uh, as I guess this guy uh, did uh, with their with his passenger. It sounded to me like he was not very excited about flying to New York yes. or Newark in this weather. Well, and, and already delayed, right? Like, so just probably a frustrating day. Has to fly through bad weather. Yep, this is really gonna be horrible. Sorry, uh, 
is what we're looking at. So. Yeah. And I'm wondering what the maintenance issue is. Lane says he thinks that he knows what the maintenance issue was. Replace the nut holding on to the yoke. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, so the guy didn't have to fly to, uh, to Newark. But, you know, here's the way this works. You know, a lot of times, <laughs> uh, you know, being an airline pilot, you pretty much go 99.9% of the time. And that's why they give us extra fuel for holding uh, in case the weather is bad and we can kind of wait it out um, sometimes and sometimes not. That's why they give us fuel to go to a diversion alternate. And so when you go out there, you know, there's a chance that you're not going to make it to the destination. But although we do make every effort to try to get you to the place that you've paid for on your ticket to get, you know, to your destination. But sometimes we don't make it. And uh, if safety is going to be a factor and terrible storms, horrific Storms, including tornadoes, are there. Well, guess what? We go somewhere else, and everybody's safe and sound. But uh, this guy sounded like he was, I think you're right, uh, Steph. He was probably getting close to a a very long duty day, and he was kind of teed or pissed off that Mm -hmm. he had to uh, continue flying. And, uh, you know, flying into a long day. And then you just lose your filter at that point. You know, it's like you just start saying the things that you're thinking and not Mm -hmm. going. Is that really what I should be saying here? Meh, just going to say it. Right. I understand that too. I mean, sometimes you get frustrated. I think everyone's been there, you know, but that's where your professionalism has to come in and realize that you're getting paid to do this job and you can't just say whatever it is that you would really like to say Mm -hmm. because there's probably going to be consequences. Yep. So. I think you're exactly right, Steph, Uh, and professionally what it comes down to. The passengers generally can only judge what kind of a person you are from what you say of the PA. Very few of them actually get to meet you in person and talk to you. Um, So what you say of the PA is vital if you want to keep their confidence. And we know that confidence in uh, flying um, is difficult for a lot of people. So, I, I, you know. It may be difficult for him if he's had a very long day and it's a particularly frustrating trip. But uh, really, honestly, you've got to keep it together, guys. That's why we like doing this job, because uh, we're the kind of people that can do that. Yes, so true. Well, speaking of horrific weather, uh, last, what was it, Friday? Was that when the uh, Hurricane Harvey finally made landfall down in the uh, Texas Gulf Coast? And it's it's still down down there. I don't think it's yeah. a hurricane anymore, but it's still a tropical system. Just and sitting there. Just twirling around, just dumping feet of rain. I think uh, some places getting more than four feet of rain already. I can't even imagine. Like, that's just incredible. Lots of flooding. The amount of water. I know. Every time we get the news, it, it sounds even worse. You know, the reservoirs are in danger of uh, overflowing and yep. uh, bursting and... Uh, huge areas of uh, the city are uh, are underwater. So uh, I've got great sympathy with everyone there. And this damn storm is moving so slowly that it's going to take perhaps a day or even two to clear, and it will just continue to pour. So uh, it's just not good. According to AT Online, uh, Houston Intercontinental and Houston Hobby Airport, the two major Uh, Commercial airline airports are closed, and because of severe flooding in Houston in the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey, significantly affecting United Airlines, they have a big hub there, and Southwest Airlines, it's a pretty big location for them as well. More than 5,000 flight cancellations in the U.S. are estimated as a result of the hurricane so far. 
and this is as of uh, sometime earlier today, I believe. So um, anyway, yeah, it's a big mess down there. They have not only people stranded, but they have, uh, well, I guess airline crews and airline workers are also people. Uh, they're stranded as well. Uh, I was reading some reports of uh, air crews that uh, have been there for many, many days, and uh, they're going to be stuck there for who knows how long. Um, I was there back in 2001, in June of 2001. If you look at, I was looking at the Weather Channel oh, yeah. earlier today, and they were showing a list of the uh, the greatest amounts of water uh, dumped by a tropical mm-hmm. system. And I think it was number three or number four. I think um, Hurricane... I, I think it say. wasn't even a hurricane. It was a tropical no, storm. It was a tropical storm. And I can't storm. remember the name of it, but it was. It was It was summer of 2001. Allison. Allison. Yeah, that sounds right. That, and that was a storm where uh, we got in, and we thought that Alice, Allison had been around, kind of the same thing that Her- Harvey was doing, and just kind of hanging around. And then finally it was moving out. As we were coming in from Atlanta, the storm was moving out. And it was actually a nice day that afternoon when we walked over to the uh, a Mexican restaurant across the, uh, the major highway there. And as we were walking back after we had a nice meal, Guadalajara, I think was the name of the uh, restaurant. We were walking back to our hotel, and all of a sudden, these big giant drops started dro- uh, dropping again. We're going, huh, I thought this thing was moving out. And then we went to the hotel and went to bed because we had like a 3.30 pickup in the morning. And when I got up and I opened up my drapes in my room, I looked down at what used to be roads, and it was all flooded. It looked like just we were in a lake. And wow. cars were floating, and um, it was just uh, it looked it was amazing <laughs> just to see what had happened overnight. Because guess what? Um, what did I call it? Allison? Had shifted back over Houston and continued to dump more rain. And uh, I think they, I think twenty people died in the flooding mm-hmm. on the, in that event. Um, Oh, really? They don't want that one again. Yeah. So I was, I think I got, I think I was only stuck there for another day. I think we were able to get from where we were um, west of downtown out to the uh, Houston Intercontinental Airport and and out of there. I was actually impressed with the driver of the uh, limo company that uh, he seemed to know which roads to take to get us out of there. But uh, that was actually. Just got a notification on my phone from the Weather Channel app. Mm-hmm. It says, Tropical Storm Harvey sets preliminary lower 48 U.S. rainfall record with 51.88 inches. Wow. It's a lot of water is to fall lot. from the sky. <laughs> Amazing. Incredible. Okay, so our, uh, our thoughts, prayers are for all of you that are um, affected by this, uh, this terrible storm and flooding in uh, the Texas Gulf Coast area, which I guess is slowly shifting up toward uh, the Louisiana uh, coastline and New Orleans most likely going yeah. to be affected by this as well. So not good. No, not good. Um, yeah, definitely not. Um, Jeff, before you move on, yeah. uh, Brian Parrott in the chat rooms asked me to cover this uh, this poster that's behind me. So if you don't mind, mm-hmm. I'd like to mention that it's all about Airbus airplanes and it's got A320s and A330s and A340s and A350s and A380s. So I could mention all the airlines. I hope that's covered it sufficiently for him. Okay. okay. I think that um, that more, more than does it. 
So it's Me. nothing but very, Airbus airplanes, huh? Very thorough coverage. Yeah, yeah, it's no Boeings on it at all. <laughs> okay. All righty. Uh, let's see. I thought I just saw this. This is kind of interesting. Uh, Pittsburgh. Um, for if you live in the Pittsburgh area, great news. You can drive all the way to Coriopolis, Pennsylvania, to the Pittsburgh airport. Go through all the hassles of security to go shopping. Yay. 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 <laughs> I'm thinking. I love shopping at the airport. Wow. Really? Although, to be fair, yeah. they have a lot of nice shops in that airport. They do have a lot of nice shops. For sure, but it, it, you got to really go out of your way to get to them. I mean, the airport's not really near anything unless you happen to be in Coriopolis or have to go to the airport for some other reason, such yeah. as to catch a flight. And if you were going to catch a flight, you're, you'd have your ticket and you could get through security without a problem. But if you wanted to go just shop or maybe meet somebody coming in, you remember the old days before mm-hmm. all of the security, before 9-11, if somebody was coming in from somewhere, you could actually go through security and meet them at the gate as they were getting off the airplane. Well, looks like now you can do that at Pittsburgh, or at least coming up soon. September 5th, I think, is the first day of this program where uh, you can get a My Pit Pass that enables you to go through the security checkpoints, access the airport shops and restaurants between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. Monday through Friday. And this program is the first of its kind in the U.S. There are currently no plans to expand it to other airports at this time. Hooray! Yeah. Uh, TSA did not need to hire additional personnel to accommodate this program because many of us were sitting around doing nothing anyway. No, wait. (laughs) (laughs) I added that part. And we will have the staff we need at Pitt to handle the additional influx of people. Uh, TSA also does not anticipate that there will be any impact on checkpoint wait times. So... Just thought that was interesting, kind of going, doing the retro thing at Pittsburgh. I think it's funny, you know, they mentioned just this, this is so that people can access the shops and restaurants, but once you're through security there, you can still go to the gates if you wanted to. There's nothing that, mm-hmm. there's no other checkpoints or barriers or anything like that, correct? Correct. So it's just as if you had a regular boarding yeah. pass to take a flight somewhere. It's just a kind of a day pass to access everything on the other Hang side out of the security. Cool. And they say it's okay. It's not that's not unsafe because you're going to go through the same kind of security screening that you would if you were flying somewhere. So, sure, we'll see how that goes. I, I'm just thinking if you're in a bit of a hurry, a bit late for your flight, you're going to have to queue up behind a whole bunch of shoppers. And even when you get through security, uh, instead of having a, a straight path down to your gate, you're going to have to fight through all these people who are buying stuff and not getting on airplanes. And you know, just you know what I think. Way. I don't think anyone's going there just to go shopping. <laughs> I, I think that's why it's going to work and be okay. I think it's an effort from these these stores probably yes, just to sure. stay alive. Yeah. You know, trying to get as much traffic as they can. Yeah, much revenue. Yep. Yeah. That's it too. That's the word I was looking for. Uh, okay, moving on. Um, I saw somebody tweet some pictures of this. And when it was on Twitter, it said this, this airplane hit a balloon. And then you could see the right engine nacelle. And I'm thinking, what kind of balloon did this guy hit to cause these huge gashes through the cowling of the intake of the uh, CFM 56 engine on their, or whatever it was. I don't know if it was a CFM 56. It was a CFM 56. Okay. On a Airbus A320-200. And then uh, doing some research for the show, I came across this on the... uh, AV Herald, the Aviation Herald, 
and a, a Jazeera Airways Airbus A320-200 uh, was flying uh, from Riyadh, Saudi Arabia to Kuwait. They were on approach to Kuwait City when ATC issued instructions to maintain 5,000 feet and to join a left-hand holding pattern at waypoint IVETA, IVETA, uh, due to another aircraft arriving with a medical emergency, and they had priority. So, while in the holding pattern at um, 1614 local, the right-hand engine contacted the cable of a military captive balloon, um, and uh, let's see, rising up to about 5,000 feet AGL. The balloon deflated and slowly fell to the ground. The crew did not observe any abnormal engine indications and continued for a normal landing on Kuwait's runway 15 right. A post-flight inspection revealed a sliced engine inlet and serious damage along the engine cowl fan blades appeared to be intact. The aircraft was unable to continue its schedule. It's still on the ground in Kuwait about 31.5 hours after landing. And... So it, in the uh, report here on the Aviation Herald, it has, well, pictures of this cowling. And <laughs> it really is amazing that it didn't do more damage. And it's probably a good thing that it hit the right engine cowling and not any other part of the airplane, I'm thinking. I don't mm-hmm. know. Uh, it also shows a picture of the cable on the uh, on the ground. And um, a depict- That's a pretty decent-sized cable. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it doesn't look like a simple uh, steel hawser either, does it? It looks no. like it might have uh, some electrical components in there. I'm just wondering what kind of a balloon it was. Um, Adam said it was a tethered radar balloon. Yes, a military ah. balloon. There and you go. So if you look at the approach plate to uh, the instrument approach chart uh, to this approach, uh, the RNAV GNSS runway 15 right, you'll see that at the uh, Iveta initial approach fix point where the airplane was coming to and then the uh, controller told them to enter a left-hand holding pattern. On the chart itself, you'll see a little circular area, which is a, a restricted area where it says that from, I think, ground to 15,000 feet is uh, restricted. You're not supposed to fly there because of the balloon being there. And But air traffic control apparently directed them to do so. So that's kind of odd. Yeah, you kind of assume that uh, air traffic must know that the danger area is not active mm-hmm. uh, or they've uh, got a, had a clearance or some sort of coordination, particularly on a left-hand pattern, because assuming that they orientated that hold in the direction they were about to enter the RNAV approach, which was along a, uh, a VETA towards Dattar, and you just do a left-hand pattern at a VETA, you, the end of your holding pattern it's going to be right, right in that danger right in area. Center, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can see that where they put the overlay on uh, Google Earth and from the FlightAware data, it, it goes right into the center of where that circular uh, restricted area is. Yep. So, so I'm, I'm just going, what on earth were they thinking? And having said that, uh, I'm assuming this is a reasonable-sized balloon to certainly carry that length, 5,000 feet of cable that heavy. It's got to be, have a fair lifting capacity. I'm assuming it was quite big. Quite so large. I'm just wondering, <laughs> I'm wondering what the, the flight crew would do. Was it at night? Uh, no, it was at uh, 4.14 local time. Um, oh. But even then, I mean, even large balloons can be difficult to... See. And that balloon may you have know, been you, higher up too. Right, you know, they right. were at five thousand, but maybe the balloon was higher up. And I think they hit the cable. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they didn't hit the balloon. Oh, you know what? Micah has is protesting in the uh, chat room. He says it's not a balloon, folks. It's an aerostat. 
He's quite radicose. And in fact, he's writing in all caps. He's yelling right now. He's yelling at his computer. Calm down, main man Micah. Calm down. Yes, but if we had started off with Aerostat. People would be going, huh? Uh-huh. What are you talking about? <laughs> we, we understand, Micah. We're, yes. The, uh, the report said the, the Aerostat, the military captive uh, balloon, otherwise known as an Aerostat, rising up to about 5,000 feet. So that's why mm. I the balloon would be smack in front of them. Yeah. Yeah, who knows exactly where it was, but uh, you're right. It's a good thing they didn't hit the balloon, or uh, why didn't they see it? I guess it's kind of hazy in Kuwait City this time of year, probably most times. Could of the well year. be, often is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Might wow. be in the sun, I don't know. Yeah, there was a PT covering this. Oh, uh, must be talking about aerostats or something. PT, yeah. what does that stand for? Plain, uh, plain something? Private no. talk. Physical therapy. <laughs> Physical therapy. There we go. <laughs> All right. Uh, of course, we're talking about plain tales. Thank you, Liz. Okay. Um, anything else to say about this? Uh, just that uh, the only thing I can say is, wow, that was a close one. Um, if it hit mm-hmm. the wing, I would imagine that the outcome may have been not so good. I don't know. Maybe, or maybe they yeah. would have just had a dent in their wing. Yeah, I'd, probably hard to say, right? Yeah. But good outcome, nonetheless. Yes, for sure, for sure. Um, a Qatar cutter, whatever you want to call it, Q A T A R Boeing seven eighty seven eight hundred uh, was flying from Doha to Dambasar, Indonesia, with two hundred and forty people on board. They were at flight level three nine or zero. And uh, they were just south of uh, Hyderabad. Hyderabad? How do you pronounce that? Okay. Uh, When the captain reported the first officer, age 40, had lost consciousness after complaining about chest pain. That's not good. And decided to uh, divert to H-City for a safe landing on runway 27 left. I'm just reading what it says. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Uh I didn't say that. About 30 minutes later, and the first officer was treated and stabilized at the airport, subsequently taken to a hospital. The hospital reported the first officer was taken to intensive care and was fully stable. Um, So they continued on, not sure if they found another crew member or if they were legal just to go with the uh, augmented, uh, the extra augmented crew member from that point on. But... The point of this, and the reason why I clipped it, was another example of the fact that even seemingly healthy people and relatively young, 40, uh, can suffer, you know, catastrophic medical uh, incidents. And mm-hmm. this is reason the reason why we have more than one of us up there in the uh, cockpit. Absolutely. So. Yep. Just wanted to mention that for those of you who are fans of airplanes flying around with Nobody at the controls, or maybe one pilot at the controls. But bear in mind, Jeff, there's an awful lot of Microsoft flight simmers out there who would just love to have the opportunity of stepping up and that's true. That's putting true. the airplane on the ground. Yeah, then maybe I shouldn't have even mentioned it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, here's one for uh, Captain Nick. Uh, a Lufthansa, although in the comments they protest and say it was not Lufthansa, it was City something, City Link. Uh, yeah. Okay. City line. City line. City line. Okay. City line? Well, anyway, um, according to Simon on uh, the Aviation Herald, I guess he hasn't buckled to everybody's protestations. Uh, a Lufthansa Airbus A340-300 
was uh, flying from Frankfurt, Maine to Philadelphia, uh, landed on Philadelphia's runway nine right during the rollout. The number three engine, a CFM uh, 56, inboard right hand shut down on its own. The crew maintained routine communication taxi to the apron. And uh, let's see, the aircraft was unable to depart for its return flight and remained on the ground until August 19th, so about four days before returning to service. And uh, the Aviation Herald received information that a broken contact obviously caused the LP shutoff valve to shut the engine down. I guess that's the low pressure shutoff valve. I'm not sure what they're talking about there. Yes, it's the low pressure as opposed to the HP, the high pressure shutoff valve. Well, that's Obviously. 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 A broken contact. So, like uh, on a uh, on a uh, circuit board? Is that what they're talking about? Or a, well, an electrical know, Jeff, contact? Because it seems a little unlikely that the valve would shut itself if it just lost electrical input. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm pretty sure these valves uh, take a bit of moving. And uh, I've had some stuck open before now when I've tried to shut the engine down. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, you, uh, you'd think it would probably fail safe, uh, open, uh, if, uh, if it lost power. Um, so I'm not too sure if the, on the validity of this report, uh, yeah. because, uh, you actually need an input to move a valve like that, uh, usually. So I'm not sure. Um, and there's an awful lot of highly technical discussion and a lot of, um, in the comments left, uh, about uh, the authority of the FADEC, the um, electronic... Well, it's full authority, of course. Yes. I'm not, <laughs> the, I'm not, I'm not sure who the full authority goes to, but there is full authority out there somewhere. Yes, the uh, full authority digital engine controller, which uh, basically controls all the systems on the engine. Um, whether it's capable of uh, moving that valve, I know it's capable of moving the HP valve and... and uh, to be fair, uh, I stopped flying this airplane quite a few years ago, and uh, the A346 under iFly has the, uh, Rolls-Royce Trents on it. So I'm really not up with the CFM 56 uh, system. So I can't really comment on it, but it just seems unlikely that uh, a simple loss, uh, you know, um, broken wire would shut that valve having said that uh there are different phases of flight for the airbus at which different things happen and one of those phases is when the speed reduces in your rollout and you'll often get a some warnings come up just as you're clearing the runway because they've been inhibited they don't want to distract you because they're too minor to be concerned about uh during the final approach and the landing and it may be that uh, the FADEC decided that there was a fault with the engine, but it wouldn't do anything about it until the aircraft was safely on the ground and the speed was so low that it no longer uh, thought you needed the engine, in which case it might have done something to protect itself. Uh, but without more uh, information, I can't really comment on that. It would be a surprise, I would imagine. You know, all of a sudden you look and you go, well, what is all this going on? Oh, the engine just shut down, you know. Yeah, but- particularly without some warnings. I mean, right. I've had an engine... Uh, shut down on me like that uh, on the ground uh, because uh, a servo that controlled the inlet guide vanes had failed. Um, and when I tried to open the throttle, the engine refused to accelerate. And then after a little while, the uh, FADEC decided that there was a fault and it just said engine fail. Hmm. And the engine wound down. 
you know, when you get an engine failure, because, uh, you know, there's obviously a major fault with it, you expect the engine to wind down. But why they didn't have a warning with it, I don't know whether this is a entirely accurate report. I'm not it sure. may not be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it was on the internet, though. <laughs> true. Everything on the internet is true. Got to be accurate. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and it's on our show where we have at least a 50% accuracy rating. Yeah, yeah. So the Everything next is true 50% of the time. I think that we're, we've are we we've crept up into the, I don't know, 51, 52% range already. Mm, better yeah. than half. All right. Uh, let's see. Oh, here's a good one. Uh, this one caught my attention. Sure it did. Uh, let's see. <laughs> Vietnamese airline... Vietjet has promised that all flight attendants on their soon-to-be-opened route from Ho Chi Minh City to Jakarta will be fully clothed after Indonesian authorities raised concerns. So apparently... I'm not sure what they're saying here, but apparently this is music inside the uh, airplane where the flight attendants in their bikinis and modest cover-ups dance through the narrow body aisles and uh, there's a youtube video if you want to watch it (laughs) uh apparently the uh, youtube video is uh showing the unsanctioned pr stunt uh the airline was fined 20 million dong yes you heard me right 20 million dong, which is about $880. How big's a dong? Well, <laughs> not very much, actually. Oh, uh, I should know. She's a doctor. Yeah. Those of us with experience. Okay. Um, so, uh, anyway, the uh, they were sanctioned the uh, $880 for the unsanctioned PR stunt. It has since become uh, synonymous with bikini-wearing flight stewards and regularly uses them in advertising campaigns. Because of this reputation... When the carrier announced that it was opening a route to the capital of Indonesia, officials in the conservative Muslim country raised concerns, and the airline's direct uh, deputy director for commercial affairs said, however, that uh, nope, nope, we're gonna we're going to insist that our flight attendants keep their clothes on, at least while they're working the flight. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I just couldn't resist. I saw that. I'm not surprised. I love the way it says they shot to prominence. <laughs> yes. But well, uh, anyway, they apparently were bikini-clad beauty pageant contestants. Mm-hmm. So, um, oh no, it's since become synonymous with bikini-wearing flight stewards. Yeah. Flight stewards wearing bikinis. How weird is that? That, that actually conjures up a completely different image in <laughs> my does. mind, which I yes. don't really want to visit at all. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> sure about the accuracy of this report either, Jeff. As a former swimmer, I have no problem with any of this. It's fine. I say, go for it. Okay. So the next time we see Steph, we'll be playing the uh, that music I just played. <laughs> Good idea. Well, I'll put it to go along with my calendar. <laughs> or, uh, Pageant, oh, yeah. Whatever. Yes. Miss World 2017 uh, swimsuit competition winner. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's enough of that. I think uh, it's now time for us to move on to the best part of the show. Your feedback. Captain. Incoming message. Let's see, would somebody like to start uh, with Landon's um, feedback? Or I can read it if you'd like. Is that Landon taxi questions? Yes. Oh, good Lord. Hey, Captain Jeff, Doc, 
Doctor, Captain Steph, Captain Yes, Captain Dana, Captain Nick, Miami, Rick, wherever in the world you may be, uh, we need an APG special with Miami Rick. We demand rickets. Well, you can probably get the rickets, but whether you get the Miami Rick or not, Landon, I, I don't know. <laughs> Anywho, that, that's what you say, isn't it, Jeff? Yes. Uh, Landon, uh, I wanted to say it was gr uh, great meeting Nick in the city, San Francisco, and look forward to meeting you too again, Jeff. We all had a blast at the last drop tavern and hate that I had to leave early, but I had to keep Natasha happy. I'm sure you did that very well. It is truly amazing that all of us APGs could get together from all walks of life and talk aviation. I definitely made some great new friends uh, that have a common interest uh, flying. We have to keep it going. Dana, Steph, and Rick have to come and give the left coast some love too because it's the best coast. But uh, to the feedback part, I wanted to know if captains, as part of their upgrade training, go through a comprehensive training segment on just taxiing the airliner. I know that the Mad Dog has a tiller on one side, as most airliners do. I know that the Square Bus, Nick, has a tiller <laughs> on both sides, as well as the 777s. Do each pilot in the buses take turns taxiing the aircraft uh, but for the ones that are upgrading an aircraft with a single tiller uh, what uh, or what all is taught in the upgrade class is taxiing with a tiller easier than is taxiing with a tiller easier with a tiller I'm not sure. <laughs> as opposed yeah. to like as opposed to like in a general aviation aircraft where it might just be with rudders only. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Can you put it on two wheels going around a corner? Nick, when you're taxiing a scare bus around, will the bus compensate an automatic increase in power when it's taxiing up a hill? An example would be like at KATL when you're traveling downhill to the middle of the airport and up the other side, you're in a kind of a bowl. Well, I guess that's a lot of questions. There are a few. Keep the shows coming and keep the West Coast meetups rolling. Blue skies and tailwinds, Landon. Well, I bet you can take the beginning part of that, Jeff. Uh, okay. So is there a comprehensive training segment on just taxiing the airliner? Well, at my company, sadly, no. <laughs> nobody, nobody said a thing about it to me when I upgraded to captain. And... On my IOE, uh, I was just kind of on my own. I'm thinking, you know, isn't anybody going to give me some pointers here about taxing the airplane? I guess they assume that by the time you're upgrading a captain, you know, you've uh, seen people taxi the airplane before and you know how to do it. And so, of course, the very first thing that I did after starting up a couple of the engines on the 727 was I asked my first officer, the, the training captain, uh, when I was doing my uh, initial operating experience, I said, uh, go ahead and call for taxi. And so he called for taxi clearance and we received it from the ramp controller and I proceeded to push the throttles up and I'm thinking, wow, it's taking a lot more power than I thought it would. And then finally somebody tapped my shoulder and pointed to the parking brake release handle. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it does taxi a lot better when you have the small, uh, parking small details off. Yeah. Small <laughs> so, details. and then, uh, on my very first, uh, trip by myself as a captain, I flew into uh, Little Rock uh, for that uh, charter. It was a uh, White House press corps charter. 
and uh, we had to go to a different part of the airport, not the part with the terminals and the wide taxiways and that kind of thing. No, the place where the fixed base operations are and they have taxiway, uh, taxiway widths uh, appropriate for general aviation aircraft. And I'm thinking to myself the whole time, don't go off the pavement. Don't go off the pavement. Don't hit the wing of that Beechcraft Bonanza. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> uh, it was uh, it was very, very interesting. So, yeah, so I should I guess I should just say no. I didn't get any instruction whatsoever on how to taxi an airplane. I'm not sure if you received something, uh, Nick, at your company. Well, uh, yeah, the uh, Airbus, of course, you can steer it from either side. Uh, and um, the first officers uh, steer it whenever it's their handling sector. So uh, as soon as uh, we started the engines, which the captain does, he hands over full control to the uh, first officer who uh, drives it out there. Um, now, the Airbus is not an easy airplane to taxi. Um, for a start, the 340s are extremely long. So the 600 has taxi cameras to help you uh, run the nose wheel appropriately close to the edge of the taxiway when you're going around a sharp corner. And you can keep an eye on the main wheels to make sure that you don't drag them off the taxiway on a sharp corner onto the grass or start trampling over taxi lights and things. So uh, uh, that's not really the hardest bit. You you do learn to compensate for that. And basically it means driving the cockpit way over the grass on a sharp corner um, so that the nose wheel, which is some distance behind you, uh, is uh, still on the taxiway uh, when you start the corner. Uh, if you were uh, just turned as if you were driving a car with uh, your backside in the middle of the road, you'd be off the taxiway very quickly. Another part of problem is the fact that it's a, it's a steer-by-wire um, tiller. So uh, you can turn the tiller quite fast, or in fact, turn it as fast as you like. The nose wheel can only turn at uh, the rate at which the nose wheel steering will drive it. So it's very easy for you to demand uh, uh, an amount of tiller movement, but you've got to wait for the nose wheel steering to the nose wheel to physically catch up. And when it has, and you don't really know when it's exactly caught up, you do get a feel for it after a while. You then got to judge whether that's enough turn you've put in, and uh, then you've got to adjust it a little more or a little less. Um, and you, it really takes a little. A bit of practice to know how far to swing that tiller when you're going into a corner. Uh, otherwise, um, if you start moving it around too much, the nose wheel steering will just jerk the aircraft uh, back and forth, and you'll have all the cabin crew who are trying to do their safety demo sitting on their backsides in the in the aisles instead of um, standing up looking elegant. So that's the hardest bit. Uh, just getting used to that uh, that lack of um, inter lack of connection between the actual tiller and the nose wheel. So the tiller moves and the nose wheel then tries to catch up with where you've put it and you just hope you've put it in the right place to get the amount of steering you're looking for. And um, when it comes to uh, the aircraft providing power, now it's up to the pilot to move the throttles if he uh, needs it. Most of the time, uh, particularly with any ice on, when you get a little bit more ground idling, the engines are quite powerful enough just to push the airplane along nicely um, at idle power. Uh, if you're going into a sharp corner, though, the nose wheel does turn quite a long way and it provides quite a lot of resistance. And because we don't have 
the uh, center body gear steering, sorry, like uh, you do, I say, on a 747, uh, you do tend to scrub the tires, the main wheel tires, a little bit as you go around a corner, and that creates a lot of friction. So you do sometimes have to anticipate a little bit of power just to keep the airplane turning, because the last thing you want is halfway through a turn, the airplane grinds to a halt, because you need <laughs> quite a lot of power to get it moving again, and you don't want to blow all the you know, vehicles and things that might be behind you when you open up those taps to try and get the airplane turning again. Uh, interestingly, uh, you mentioned the uh, the oversteering on the on the 600, uh, 340, 600. Uh, we on the, not quite as bad, of course, as the, uh, uh, the 340 that you fly, Captain Nick, but on the uh, Mad Dog, uh, if you look at it, it's one of the longest wheelbase airplanes out there, um, you know, especially when you compare it to most of the, narrow bodies out there the uh, nose wheel to where the main gear is on the stretched uh, uh i call it the dc9 er uh the uh, the mad dog um is is quite a distance and uh that kind of bites people um when they fly other airplanes and then they shift to the mad dog and taxi that thing around and not realizing the fact that uh, the the main gear is really really far back and so we have to oversteer as well of course the nose wheel isn't behind us it's like pretty much right where our where we're sitting that's where the nose wheel is located but uh, sometimes we have to pretend that we're in a big giant wide body airplane when we're taxiing it uh, when we're making some sharp uh, 90 degree turns we have to do a lot of oversteer on on my airplane as well otherwise you end up rolling over taxi lights and that kind of thing and apparently they uh, get a little upset about that when you when you mm-hmm. destroy their taxi lights and I mean, they cost mud. cost a little bit of money, and yeah, does a little bit of damage. Yeah, yeah, yeah like help a tire too. Yeah, but well, we, don't, we don't have any cameras or anything like you guys have. That'd be kind of cool. Well, it is kind of cool, but they're they're not actually an MEL item, so you can go with them broken, and they're frequently broken. So oh. bummer. Yeah. Well, I don't have any interesting uh, taxiing stories because it's relatively easy to do in a general aviation aircraft. But I will say. I had a couple encounters with people driving today who apparently have no idea how to steer their vehicles. <laughs> so um, those people could use a remediation course. Anyway, moving on. Yeah, you, <laughs> Stephanie was definitely um, challenged today <laughs> from uh, our fellow humans. Yeah, there were a few instances. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't even tell you about the first one. That was uh, at Starbucks this morning. So. Oh, it started that early, huh? Started that early, starting the day off right. Yeah. Oh, the humanity. Uh, yes. Now, Steph, when you steer a light aircraft, mm-hmm. you have got tow brakes on the, on the rudders. Yep. So yes. if you can put a rudder on and with the prop wash, you can often get a bit of turn from that. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, absolutely. If, if not, then you can just dab those tow brakes. And some aircraft, like the Diamond and the Cirrus, have a, a free castering nose wheel. So you have to actually steer with some differential braking in most cases. Yeah, that, that reminds me of the Hunter. The, that was exa- a similar system. It had mm-hmm. a free castering nose wheel. And um, then you had a bicycle brake on the back of the control column. Oh, really? Um, like a handlebar yeah. brake? Exactly like a handlebar brake, mounted vertically uh, oh. with a cable on it, just like a bicycle. Interesting. Uh, on the back of the control column. Now, when you pull that, you applied the brakes. Now, they applied evenly if you had the rudder central. But as you move the rudder to one side or another, they applied more brake to one wheel than the other. So to go around a corner, you had to release the brake, put some rudder on, then you dabbed at this 
a handlebar brake and so that only one wheel would break and then the airplane would start to slither around the corner. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That was a nightmare to wow. take around that airplane. <laughs> just, get, just getting that coordinated was terrible for us students. Well, and with, um, you know, your smaller uh, uh, multi-engine aircraft, you can use differential power too to help you steer through corners. And oftentimes you don't need much even in the way of rudder steering to get around a not so sharp corner. And we use um, on the, or at least I do on the Mad Dog, uh, using reverse thrust when you're making, you're coming off the runway and you have to make a, a nice sharp turn. You know, I'll, I'll use a little bit of differential um, reverse to kind of help the turn around and that kind of thing. Just yeah, I think our book allows us to use differential power. Uh, we don't use it very commonly. Yeah. Um, perhaps if uh, we're on a particularly slippery taxiway uh, contaminated conditions we'll sometimes use differential power because the nose wheel steering uh, you know those nose wheels will slither along uh, you know particularly if you've got a sharp corner you deflect the nose wheel too far it just slides along it you know sideways <laughs> the airplane <laughs> shows no tendency to move whatsoever uh, so we, we'll bang a bit of differential power to get the aircraft swinging around. The only time that we have to be careful is that when we've got full deflection on, if you use differential power at that point, you can actually over-deflect the uh, nose wheel steering system and break it. That's a bad feeling when you're turning the uh, nose wheel steering and you're continuing to go straight. Yes, I know. <laughs> We've been there, done that. And even worse when you're doing it on wet piano keys is you're trying to get onto the runway and uh, going across the painted bits, you don't get any nose or steering. Then you hit the black bit between them oh. and there's a grunching sound of the airplane <laughs> lurches to one side. Then it hits another painted bit and stops turning. It's really yeah. difficult. Oh, my other, my other interesting taxi story is when I was still pretty new captain on the airplane. We were taxiing out in, in Orlando and we we're coming off the ramp and I, I'm, you know, I've got a good bit of speed and I start turning the airplane to the left to, you know, follow the taxiway and it wasn't turning. And I was like, why is this not turning? And I'm looking straight ahead of me and in Orlando, Florida, in between the taxiways, a lot of them have uh, like water, <laughs> water traps. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, we're going to go into the water. And I started doing some differential braking. And then I looked down and saw that the electronic hydraulic pumps weren't on that was something that the first officer skipped and i went oh, would you mind please turning those on and as soon as he did boom you know we i finally got some nose wheel steering back but i almost went into one of those water uh ponds or whatever in between the taxiways that got my attention so now it's one of those things in my cross check when i'm taxiing you know to make sure that i have all the hydraulic pressure necessary to actually steer the airplane <laughs> I love it. all right um, oh, and another thing on the Mad Dog, one of those idiosyncrasies is that when they can, when they disconnect the towing bar, uh, they they move a little um, a little lever, and it's actually uh, connected with a cotter pin, and it's called a flyaway. Um, actually, they disconnect it with uh, disconnect the fly, the cotter pin, and this thing uh, flies away. So if it's not um, connected with the cotter pin, then uh, it means that our nose wheel steering is going to work, but they, it deactivates the hydraulic pressure to the nose wheel steering system. So when they're towing the, uh, pushing the airplane back and that kind of thing, that, um, there's no problem with, uh, you know, the pressure. And sometimes they forget to, you know, move that flyaway switch to the proper position. So it's still, uh, cotter pinned 
and you don't have any nose wheel steering at all. But usually that's something that you notice right away because as soon as you try to move the tiller, the tiller doesn't move. So you stop and then you call somebody and tell them, would, could somebody come back out and do the pin, the nose wheel steering pin, please? Are anyway. they supposed to show it to you as they walk away from the airplane? They, well, see, it's not actually a, see, in airplanes that I've flown where you, they actually pull a pin and it has like a big red flag on it and they show it to you. Mm-hmm. Well, there's no, there's not nothing to show us. It's like oh, it's all okay. self-contained on the nose wheel steering mechanism. Oh, fair enough. They'd yeah. have to like take a picture and send it to you on your cell phone or something. Here you go, <laughs> <Yeah>. look. <laughs> that work. No, what, uh, usually what they'll do is like the guy that was, or gal that was in charge of doing that operation will, as they're walking away, usually with their back to you, just kind of give you a thumbs up. Like, you know, I did it and you should be able to steer the airplane, but Good luck. So, yeah. Sometimes it doesn't work out that way. You mean they don't turn around and salute you? Oh, no, there's another person that does that. And that oh, okay. person is supposed to make sure that all that was done. But sometimes it gets missed. Yeah. Hey, Pip, you ever heard of this guy? Who? Pip. Philip Martin- Philip Martinsky. He is a listener to our show, and I think he has something else going on in the podcasting world. In fact, I think he's the host of a Plane Safety podcast. He sent this in to us um, a while back, I guess when he was still down in Disney World. Hello from Disneyland, or is it Disney World? Well, after two weeks of space mountains, seven dwarfs mine trains, and $50 burgers, I'm now officially broke. Before I start my new life as a hobo, I want to use my last few pennies to send this email in and correct Captain Nick, who I've heard several times say that China is the only remaining country in the world to measure altitude in meters. In fact, Russia still uses meters below transition level to measure height, QFE. However, this is slowly changing. There are some cities in Russia, St. Petersburg, for example, which have started using feet below transition level. I believe the plan is for the whole of Russia to convert to feet QNH by 2018 when they host the Football World Cup, a.k.a. soccer. But for the time being, though, you might get feet, meters, thumbs, barley corns, willies, or apples. <laughs> As they say in Russia with every landing clearance, good luck. <laughs> Claire, do they really? Yep. <laughs> I've never flown in Russia, so I thought, uh, I can't they, be right. I give it like the best you, Russian accent, just like, yeah, good, luck. good luck. Every time you got handed over from one sector to another, which is very frequent in Russia, they used to say it as well, not so much nowadays. <laughs> Anyway, clear skies, especially on the 21st, Pip. And uh, I, I wish you'd sat on this just a little bit longer, because I think if you just waited a bit longer, then I would have probably been correct, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, <it's> apparently <laughs> they're changing yeah. over. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> yeah, so. You're just temporarily wrong. So if you if you just edit this out and put it back in okay. time in 2018. If you give me a big enough contribution, Nick, I'll, <laughs> I'll edit it out. <laughs> But, but Pip, of course, is right. And because he, he fly, actually lands there occasionally, whereas I, uh, I've only ever overflown Russia. So he would know. Yeah. Uh, Norbert, uh, this might be something interesting um, to you, Steph. Uh, yeah. However, it would have been interesting to me as well, except that it's all sold out, unfortunately. He sent in a, um, uh, an email with this. Uh, I, I may have already talked about it on the show, but it's a – the southernmost, uh, the fifth runway uh, run uh-huh. in Atlanta, a 5K, uh, where you can either run or walk or jog or whatever you want to do. Um, but uh, he sent me notification of this, and then I went to the website and found out that it was already sold out. Um, but uh, he said, well, 
If you're up uh, in the Toronto area at Toronto Pearson, I'm not sure if this is sold out yet or not, uh, but the Toronto Pearson Runway Run 2017. And uh, join us Saturday, September 23rd for the 10th Annual Runway Run. Registration's now open and space is limited. So again, hopefully... By the time you're hearing me talk it about it, it looks this. like you can still register the oh, the 5K individual uh, run. You can still register for. You can do the 5K as a team. Uh, you can register for that. I'm not sure if that's everyone runs the whole distance and it's added up points as a team, or if you do part of it. But you can do up to 10 people. So I'm assuming it's the former. There's a 2K individual that is sold out and a 2K team that is still available for registration. Oh, as okay. far as. And then um, adding on to that, I actually found out there's also a 5K run that's being held at, I believe, Chicago Midway Airport on September 17th. And sadly, I cannot attend either one of these. But uh, yeah, I've, I've done runway runs in the past. They're actually great because they're flat and they lend themselves to being rather fast. So um, it's a good time if you have a chance to do one. I, I highly recommend it, especially if you're an av geek and listening to the show because you'll get to be up close and personal with some aircraft probably too, while you're there. So Do not they landing use on the, okay, not so using yeah. the runway at the same time okay. you're using the runway. Just but. want to be sure <laughs> that they're not doing that. Sounds kind Correct. of dangerous. No, to no, me. no, that's, that's uh, yeah. Not <laughs> or, or as, if you're flying though, do you get extra points? If you uh, hit a few uh, runners, 10 points for that. One. 10 points. Ding. <laughs> Ding. There we go. Uh, in the uh, text of this article on their website, you'll uh, also be treated to incredible views and up-close encounters with the animals, equipment, and people who make Toronto Pearson a world-class airport. Like Animals? Animals? Did I say animals? It says animals. Oh, it does. Yeah, wait. What does that mean? <laughs> I don't <laughs> I know. I kind of just skipped right over that. I didn't even... <laughs> I'm a little confused by that, but... Uh, yeah. What kind of animals are you going to have encounters with there? Hmm. Birds. Birds. Okay. Lots of birds. Probably not crocodiles and alligators. Probably not. No. That's the Florida Yeah, it's the runway Orlando run. runway run. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Well, thank you, uh, Norbert, in Atlanta for uh, letting us know about that. Now, here is an interesting subject to talk about, I think. Um, and I've combined two pieces of feedback because they're kind of same, the kind of same thing. Uh, Cole and Volandis. I'll start with Cole because he sent his in first. Uh, hello, all. My name is Cole. I've been listening to the podcast for a little over a year now. It's safe to say I have APG syndrome. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a APG syndrome. APG syndrome. And he says he's been listening to the podcast for a little over a year now. Uh, I've tried submitting feedback through the iOS app a couple of months ago with no luck, so I will try again. Hmm, sorry you had trouble there. I know a lot of people use it and get through. Uh, I'm a flight student at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. I'm a commercial pilot with an instrument rating, and I'll begin CFI training this fall semester. I was wondering when you guys started to feel comfortable and confident as a pilot, specifically while flying IFR. As I am instrument rated, I could never see myself flying solo in actual instrument conditions in the near future. I lack the confidence to push myself on these types of flights when flying without an instructor. I was wondering when you all started to feel comfortable flying in IMC and if you had any recommendations as to how to build confidence with this sort of thing. Also, if you have any advice as I embark on my journey to become a CFI, it would be much appreciated. Thank you for all the time and effort you put into the show. You'll have... 
you all have different and unique perspectives that make this podcast amazing. Thank you again, Cole. And uh, I can I can give you an answer straight away, Cole. Uh, I'm I've never felt comfortable flying an IMC. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think it's as it, with everything, you know, the more you do something, the the more you build your level of confidence. But I'm going to let um, Steph uh, yeah. kind of put in her two cents worth. I think you're exactly on the right track there. And my my answer to your question is, first of all, if you're not confident, there's no pressure to actually go out and fly in instrument conditions um, because it's not, you know, at this point, you're not an airline pilot. You're not getting paid that type of money to to do that. And if you're not confident with it, then you do need to go out and practice more because practice does make perfect. And like Jeff said, the more you do something, the more confidence you will build with it. And we all have something, I think, or we all have things that cause us to have hangups or things that we're not particularly sure that we're doing well or correctly all the time. But I promise that the more you do it, the more confident you're going to become with it. And even though you may not recognize that in yourself initially or, or quickly, um, the people that you're flying with will be able to give you open and honest feedback on that. And the more you do it with them, after a while, I think you're just going to have someone there with you and you'll be doing the majority of the work and be very confident in flying in IMC conditions. So I'd say it's, it's just practice. It's just getting out there, being familiar with it. And, you know, when you're, when there's something that you're confronted with that you're not confident in doing, um, you know, it's not pushing yourself to do it alone, but it's pushing yourself to go out there in those conditions over and over and over again until it is something that you're comfortable with. And don't do it on your own until you're comfortable with it because it's not worth out, worth it being out there being nervous or uncomfortable or having, um, you know, more things going on that you can process for the situation. So, it's but it comes with time. It comes with time. Isn't it? Because uh, you're having to pay for this yourself. Uh, you know, you're paying for hours doing something you don't particularly enjoy. You're not looking out the window or you're under a, under a bloody hood. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's tough motivating yourself to go and do it. It is, but I mean, if you're, you know, we're in all, we're all in this because we love flying and this is one aspect of it, especially if you're on a, uh, you know, if you want to be on a career track to do it. Um, but I think a lot of people are in similar situations to you, Cole. And I think most people, once they get a certain level of familiarity and it just comes with repetition. And that's all it is. So you're going to get there yeah. with it. Absolutely. No, I have to agree. Um, are there many uh, GA simulators out there that uh, uh, he could use? Yeah, it depends on on where you are. Um, the flight school I rent from has one of the Redbird uh, simulators, and I'm I actually have not used it, but you can certainly use it for maintaining instrument currency. Um, so that might be a way to go to at least become more comfortable with um, flying and simulated instrument conditions. It's also, as Nick mentioned, you know, this all costs money. The simulators are a fair bit less expensive than renting an actual aircraft or waiting for even the right weather conditions to be able to go out and fly in actual IMC. Although I will say there's nothing that substitutes for actual IMC um, simulated conditions um, in VFR flight are not the same. So no matter how much you try and make it the same. No, no, I, I agree. But no, and, and it must be tough when you uh, uh, go into the airport on a foul day 
uh, and going, right, I'm going to get airborne in this and fly around in it and, <laughs> and get more actual time. And with anything else, you know, you want to you want to build gradually on basic skills. So um, I, I think it probably doesn't hurt to stay in the local area and, you know, just shoot approaches back to your local airport and start on days when perhaps the minimums or perhaps the ceilings are higher than actual minimums. You don't want to go out and shoot an approach to, you know, 200 feet every single time. You maybe want to have that be a little bit higher so you can build your confidence with flying in actual IMC and being able to fly the approach, but then have a comfortable margin where you can break out and see and, you know, it's not that you're convincing yourself, but you'll be able to see that it actually works the way it's supposed to. And that will give you more confidence. It's always a good feeling after yeah. flying an instrument approach. And then all of a sudden everything oh, clears and you go, wow, there's a runway right there where it's it supposed worked. to be. <laughs> Yay. Yeah. But it does take a lot of concentration. It, it uh, is quite tiring after a while. It can be very tiring, especially if you're flying an aircraft that does not have a good autopilot. And, you know, if you're talking about single pilot operations in a single engine aircraft without an autopilot, that's actually very difficult work. Um, it's much easier for me to take an airplane like the Cirrus that has a autopilot that works well, so I can actually pay more attention to the approach and um, you know, know that the heading is set, know that my altitude is set, know that I'm where I'm, I'm where I'm supposed to be when I'm supposed to be there. It just takes a lot of the workload off in those situations. But it's also really good to have those single pilot skills. I mean, that's the that's the foundation of it. But it is a lot of workload. Yeah, Steph, uh, if you don't mind, why don't you continue with uh, Valandis's? Um... Sure. So Valandis, uh, Valandis, is it Valandis or Valandis? I see it written. I, both well, times. I misspelled the one. Oh, okay. The big, it's Valandis. It's Valandis. Yeah. He says hello. I was just How trying to uh, be economical with my vowels. That's right. You're on a wheel of fortune. <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to spend the extra two hundred. Spend the extra two hundred dollars for another vowel. Yeah. Sorry, Valandis. Um, he says hello. How are you? I am writing to make some questions for this job, as I might become a pilot. Firstly, how much stress and anxiety uh, does this job have? Also, how many hours do you fly per day? Do you get anxious even in calm situations? Have you ever been scared of planes, but now you've overcome it? In which countries are there pilot colleges? What qualifications did you need to get in and out of the college? Also, how much time did you stay um, out, of, out of your home? What skills and personality should someone have who wants to be a pilot? And lastly, what are the negatives of this job? Uh, have you regret becoming a pilot? Please write back as I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you for reading this and have a nice day, Valandis. Now, Valandis, we're hoping that you're watching the show or listening to the show so that we don't have to write you back. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's a good chance we will not write back. But thank you for writing in. And what skills and personality should someone have? I'd say awesome skills and fantastic, great personalities, as we all have here. At the APG. I'm a lots of modesty. Yes. Modesty, yeah, yeah. Modest, what is that? Modesty? Modesty, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah um, so, I, w just quickly for me, stress and anxiety, yes, that is part of the equation, uh, especially when you're doing this for a living and you're transporting hundreds of passengers from point A to point B. And uh, usually that stress and anxiety is caused by weather, in my case anyway, or perhaps, you know, mechanical problems, but that doesn't normally happen very often. So the, the number one thing for me is weather that provides that uh, stress and anxiety. But we, because we've been doing this for quite some time, are able to um, 
to regulate it and to control it so that it doesn't overwhelm us. And usually that stress and anxiety is short lived. And uh, what's the saying? Uh, Flying is uh, hours and hours of boredom punctuated by moments of sheer terror. And that's actually pretty accurate. Most of the time you're flying this airplane and it's, it's almost, should we say boring, you know, which is good in my opinion, in my book. Uh, but there are times when uh, your adrenaline starts flowing a little bit more, your heart rate picks up because, you know, you are um, enduring a higher level of stress for whatever reason. And uh, that we as humans are, we have, uh, you know, uh, that built into us to be able to, that's why our adrenaline starts picking up and the adrenaline level um, starts rising and our heart rate um, I guess Steph can tell us all of the physiological things that happen to your body. You know, your blood, I think, starts uh, pooling boiling. your organs. No, boiling. Yeah, boiling. <laughs> now, that was earlier at the that's Starbucks and, like, uh, yes, yes. That's anger. and the parking garage. <laughs> You're using my physiological functions. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's your body's natural uh, defenses and uh, the way it copes with these things. And it's a good thing. Uh, but you don't want to have that. 100% of the time, because then we, you would pop and die. So I think that, um, and, and this is, you know, the it's kind of, a fact. Yes. Yeah, so that's a physiological that fact. You'll pop. Pilots I keep seeing with popped heads. You'll pop uh, and die. So if that's, if you're that kind of person, I say, don't be a pilot. Yes. Uh, but, you know, and it's funny because we, we talk about this a lot, the, the kind of jobs out there where people, maybe you're listening to this right now and you have one of these kind of jobs where, the stress level and anxiety level is very, very low, but it's very constant and it's just mm-hmm. and continuous. That is the kind of job that I could not do. I can tell you right now, I could not do that without, you know, dying of cancer, uh, probably wouldn't have lived as long as I've already lived. Uh, but the, this job for me is relatively stress-free and just occasionally I have these high peaks <laughs> of stress and anxiety, but again, they, they'd laugh they don't last very long. And so after everything's over with, you're like, okay, that's, that's in the past. Now I'm not even going to think about it anymore. Let's think about what's ahead of us now. And that's just the way, uh, it is for me. And that's the kind of job that, uh, I, uh, it works well with me and my personality. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I, you know, you mentioned that stress and anxiety is a, is a normal part of it and it's there for a reason, you know, it's to kind of heighten your, sense and awareness of what's going on. Um, but too much of that adrenaline, too much of those hormones circulating in your will make you pop and die. Will not make you pop and die generally, (laughs) but you know, it can also be distracting because if you allow you the emotional side of things to take over when you're feeling that way, um, that's where it can be very hard to manage the situation and cope with the stress and anxiety. But that's again, where, you know, we were talking about the, uh, just the amount of time and energy and experience that you put into knowing how to handle those situations. And then you can better recognize when the stress and anxiety starts to build a little bit and you can take a step back and draw an experience to know how to deal with the situation. And the other reason it's there is because, you know, if it's something that maybe you haven't really encountered before, or it's something that's exceptionally stressful. So, it, you know, take the worst weather I've ever been in as a pilot, you know, whatever that happens to be, that's going to be a stressful situation. Um, But there's probably something to be learned from it, either how to avoid it, how to handle it, how to um, 
you know, get help if you need it. And those are the things that those stress hormones help you to remember how you handled it in the future so that you can build on that as part of your experience. So makes it a very memorable event. I will say that, you know, if, if you're somebody right now thinking about becoming a pilot and just the idea of flying an airplane gives you stress and anxiety, maybe this is not the right job for you. Just saying, I don't know, unless you've given it a try. What do you think, Captain Nick? I think if you're already concerned about it and you're questioning whether you ought to go and do it, perhaps you're right. Um, I think becoming a pilot is something that most people dream of and they enter with excitement and uh, um, a little bit of apprehension, but generally speaking, they just can't wait to uh, have a go, get in the air and start learning. And uh, certainly when they've uh, you know, had their first few flights, that feelings are usually amplified enormously. So that what drives them to jump all the hurdles they need to do to uh, make a career of it. Um, when it, you ask what skills and personality someone should have, well, um, I would like to say there are no specific personality types that an airline pilot should have. Perhaps in the old days, uh, they were looking for a stable extrovert or someone of that kin. But nowadays, uh, I think that has been well debunked and people of all personality types are quite capable of becoming uh, good pilots. Uh, your skill level depends ex to a certain extent on your ability uh, to coordinate and uh, uh, for your brain to be able to uh, cope with um, the learning processes that we go through to become a pilot, and that I'm afraid you'll only find out if you have a go. And if you find you've got the skill sets needed, then um, Bob's your uncle, away you go, and, and good luck with that. And finally, he says, what are the negatives of becoming a, of the job? Have you ever regretted becoming a pilot? Well, I must admit, uh, I find it hard to imagine now, but uh, after 19 years of uh, flying in the Royal Air Force, I um, was sitting in a hardened aircraft shelter during a pretend war, wearing a gas mask, sitting on a concrete floor, staring up at a jet. And I'd been there for about three hours. I hadn't eaten for ages. Um, and we're just waiting for some simulated air raid to uh, finish. And I was thinking to myself, I think I've had enough of this job, um, which is why I became moved on to civil aviation. It was a completely different environment and gave me a, a, a new outlook in life. So, yes, it is possible to become stale, but I never regret becoming a pilot. Uh, I think at times you, you just want to change the type of work you do or just move on to a different type or a different route structure or just something just to keep things fresh. But, no, I've never regretted uh, um, becoming a pilot ever. I, neither have I. Excellent. Nope. Well, thank you, Cole and Valandis, for your queries regarding uh, stress, anxiety, and confidence. Now, let's hear this week's installment of Plain Tales. The old pilot's plain tales. But, sir, Harriers don't actually hover. A friend of mine, another captain from my airline, died well before his time from illness a couple of years ago. Like me, he flew in the military, but he served in the Navy as a sea harrier pilot. His obituary in one of our major broadsheets told a little of his life. 
During the conflict, he was described as an aggressive and most capable fighter pilot who had done very well indeed on active service in the battle for the Falklands. His greatest test came when he was patrolling on a mission at extreme range when his ship, the Invincible, sometimes nicknamed by us the Invisible, ran into thick fog. Whilst the ship searched for clear air, Charlie made an approach, but he flew past the ship without being able to spot her in the thick fog. Running seriously short of fuel, he had one more chance. As he approached the ship at slow speed, he saw a faint, diffuse glimmer from the ship's searchlights. He flew along the top of the fog and hovered his harrier beside the glow. With less than 60 seconds of fuel left, he lowered his aircraft into the murk, and at only 50 feet did the shape of the superstructure start to appear beside him out of the mist. The first anyone on the deck saw of Charlie was the red-hot glow of his aircraft's rear nozzles as he appeared from nowhere and settled safely on the deck. Asked if he was scared, Charlie replied that he was so busy, mentally and physically, that he didn't have time to be frightened. But as soon as he landed, he started to shake, a condition that continued until he was met in the crew room by Invincible's captain with a large whisky. Charlie was awarded the Queen's Commendation for Valuable Service in the Air. However, his bravery and skill were a mark of Harrier pilots around the world, as the aircraft was renowned for being a challenge to fly. It was in 1957 that the Bristol Engine Company proposed an engine design for a directed-thrust turbojet that could meet NATO's specifications for a new light tactical support fighter. It was the Hawker Siddeley Aircraft Company that bought the components of the design together as the P-1127 prototype, following the cancellation of a more advanced supersonic version on cost grounds. This aircraft was destined to fulfil Air Staff Requirement 345 for a vertical and short takeoff and landing, that is VSTOL, ground attack fighter. Sir Sidney Cam, Ralph Hooper and Stanley Hooker of Bristol Engines were the men who combined to create the concept. Close cooperation between the airframe and engine companies was vital, as the engine's ability to direct its thrust was essential to the way the aircraft was to operate. Rather than using rotors or a direct thrust engine, the Bristol Pegasus engine was an innovative design that would eventually produce more than 21,000 pounds of thrust. Of the six prototypes built, half of them would crash, including one at the Paris Air Show, which was unceremoniously dumped on the specially prepared pad that the competitor Mirage V-Stoll was to use later that day. There was no doubt the Harrier was a handful to fly, but from the P-1127 came the Kestrel, named from a small hawk that hovers over its prey. The RAF put in an initial order for 60, which they named the Harrier GR-1, after a small hawk that, strangely, is not renowned for its hovering ability. The Harrier was only one of several V-Stoll fighter aircraft of its era, which included the Bell X-14, the Combat Pogo, the Mirage 8, the Entwick Lungring Sud, 
a consortium between Bolkow, Heinkel and Messerschmitt VJ101, the Rockwell Hummingbird, the VFW VAC-119B and the Soviet Yak-38 Forger. Of all these, only the British Harrier and the Soviet Forger were to be put into production whilst the Forger needed an additional lift engine that was only used for takeoff and landing, the concept of the Harrier was considerably more elegant. The Harrier's two semicircular cheek air intakes fed a large volume of air into the twin-shaft Pegasus turbofan, which initially was compressed by the three low-pressure compressor stages, which fed air to a front pair of rotating steel nozzles. Air then continued to the core of the engine through eight high-pressure compressors, the combustion chambers, the two high-pressure turbine stages, before exiting via the rear pair of rotating nozzles, this time made of mnemonic, a special heat-resistant nickel, chromium, titanium and aluminium alloy. Of interest, the two engine spools rotated in opposite directions to greatly reduce the gyroscopic forces that would otherwise hamper low-speed handling. The factor that limited engine thrust were the turbine blade temperatures, which were estimated through sensors in the jet pipe. In order to provide sufficient power for a vertical landing or for operations in hot high conditions, a 50-gallon distilled water tank above the turbine section provided water injection to the rear of the combustion chamber to keep the blade temperatures to an acceptable level. This limited maximum power for hovering to only 90 seconds. In forward flight, the Harrier was conventional in its control methods, but for vertical flight, the nozzles had to be progressively rotated from their rearward direction to point directly downwards, and engine power controlled to carry the weight of the aircraft as lift from the wings reduced. As the speed dropped, the effectiveness of the aerodynamic controls lessened, at which point the pilot relied on the reaction controls, thrusters mounted on the wingtips, nose and tail, which were fed with air bleed from the engine. Control of the thrusters was achieved through the stick and rudder pedals and worked in a similar sense to the cyclic controls of a helicopter. Out of interest, the nozzles were rotated with modified motorcycle chains. Vertical takeoffs weren't particularly common, as with a full fuel load, the amount of weapons that could be carried was limited. Much more common were short takeoffs, which started like a normal rolling takeoff with the nozzles full aft, but then at around 65 knots they were moved forward to a mid position so that the engine could help to both continue acceleration and lift the aircraft clear of the runway. During vertical takeoffs and landings, it was critical to keep the aircraft into wind, as it was possible for a side wind to overcome the power of the reaction thrusters. A small weather vane was mounted on the nose right in front of the windshield to help the pilot assess the wind direction. The RAF viewed the most vulnerable part of a fighting force as not so much the aircraft themselves, but the air bases they operated from. A few bomb craters in a runway could stop operations for several squadrons. The Harrier, however, could still fly from short, undamaged portions or could even be deployed to small prepared clearings, helipads, roads and the like. 
Its ability to be scattered to dozens of small operating pads near the front line was highly prized. With only a short transit to the battle area, it could get airborne and be on station very quickly and return to refuel and rearm in an equally short time. It was this ability that also made it attractive to the US Marine Corps, who, despite opposition in government, acquired the aircraft in 1971. Called the AV-8A, an initial order of 108 of them was placed, and then the Spanish and Thai governments bought the aircraft as well. More advanced versions were developed, which included the GR-3, the Sea Harrier for the Royal Navy, and the Marine AV-8C. A second generation of the Harrier, the AV-8B, was developed in the 1970s as a joint Anglo-American concept between McDonnell Douglas and British Aerospace. Due to rising costs, the UK withdrew in 1975, but the aircraft was completed and made its maiden flight in 1981. It went on to serve both the US and UK forces after Britain rejoined the programme. The upgrades were substantial, and it turned the aircraft into a night-capable, radar-equipped fighter that had a very advanced cockpit, and it had a substantial performance increase over the first generation of Harrier. This version also served with the Italian and Spanish navies, as well as the USMC and the RAF. The Harrier was always a crowd-pleaser. Its unique ability to transition from 580 knots into a vertical hover made it a big draw at air shows. Its potential to operate from small carriers and away from big air bases also made it a favourite with senior officers and strategic planners alike. However, the reality was often a little different. The support needed to operate from remote locations was substantial. Convoys of heavy lorries were required to move fuel, ammunition, bombs and spares. The aircraft was labour-intensive and an engine change quite likely went away from neatly swept airfields and with a flying machine that was akin to a vast hoover that loved to suck up debris required the entire wing to be lifted off the fuselage to gain access. When carrying weapons and a decent fuel load, its vertical takeoff capability could rarely be used, so a temporary takeoff strip was required, which in turn needed engineers and more heavy equipment. The dream of hiding a few aircraft on the side of a field under a few trees was just that a dream. The pilots who flew the Harrier were generally accepted to be amongst the best. Those who graduated with the top marks were usually chosen to fly it. The aircraft was well known for killing the unwary, and it had a peacetime loss rate that was considerably higher than other types, so only those with the necessary skills were allowed into the cockpit. In the States, the Harrier was by far the most dangerous military aircraft they had. More than a third of the fleet were lost to accidents, a fact that its detractors often repeated. Of the Marine Harrier, Philip E. Coyle, the Pentagon's chief weapons tester from 94 to 2001, said, What makes this situation so difficult is that we just don't have that kind of battlefield record to support the accidental deaths. 
The statistics supported this view, as the Harrier's lifetime accident rate was twice that of the F-16, which was also single-engined, three and a half times that of the F-18, which was another naval fighter, and five times that of the A-10, which had a similar role in ground attack. The British were much more accepting, despite their loss rate being even higher than the US forces. Part of this was due to the Harrier's enormous success during the Battle for the Falklands. The only British fighter able to operate so far from land was the Harrier, and it flew with great success from HMS Invincible and Hermes. 42 Harriers, a mix of Sea Harriers and RAF GR3s, were embarked, a small force when compared with the 122 serviceable jet fighters available to the Argentinian forces. It was the Sea Harrier that flew the vast majority of the sorties, nearly 1,500, and which also claimed the 20 kills, which included Flight Lieutenant Morgan's efforts when he shot down four aircraft on his own. Of note, however, the fabled VIF combat manoeuvre, vectoring in forward flight, that is often quoted by fans of the Harrier with more enthusiasm than knowledge, was never employed in actual combat. This manoeuvre involved the pilot shifting his nozzles from the aft position to the fully forward to allow a momentary increase of turn rate and sudden braking. The aftermath of a VIFT placed the aircraft in such a low speed and vulnerable position it was only really considered as a possible last-ditch manoeuvre. The RAF's GR3s played a vital role during the ground war, performing close-air support missions by attacking Argentinian positions, suppressing enemy artillery and the like. During the war it flew the equivalent of six sorties per day per aircraft. The Harrier had played such an important role in protecting the naval fleet from repeated attack by enemy Mirage and Skyhawk fighters that it truly won a place in the heart of the British people. The American experience with the Harrier has been less favourable, but it has never been in a conflict when only the Harrier was capable of operating. With so many options available to the American forces, the Harrier has only been there to complement other aircraft and sometimes its vulnerability has shown. A single-engined aircraft will always be more easily brought down, and particularly when its heat source is near the centre of the fuselage, a missile hit will always be more effective. Add that to the Harrier's role of supporting troops close to the ground, and you get the sort of loss rate that occurred during the first Gulf War in 1991. The Harrier's attrition rate was 1.5 aircraft for every 1,000 sorties flown, compared with 0.5 for the A-10 in a similar role, and 0.2 for the single-engined F-16, and 0 for the F-18. The Harrier's airframe was packed with vital systems, and a hit almost anywhere would often fatally damage the aircraft. Five of the seven Harriers that took enemy fire were destroyed. The Marines, however, point to the Gulf War as the Harrier's proving ground. The Corps Commandant, Alfred Gray Jr., told the Senate Armed Services Committee that its support for the AV-8B had paid off in spades, and the commander of the U.S. forces in the Gulf, General Schwarzkopf, cited the Harrier as one of several weapons that gave standout performances. 
So the Harrier certainly had its fans, one of which was Sir Thomas Sopwith, the famous World War I aircraft builder, who, late in his life, said, I still don't believe the Harrier. Think of the millions that have been spent on vertical takeoff in America and Russia and quite a bit in Europe, and yet the only vertical takeoff aircraft which you can call a success is the Harrier. When I saw the Harrier hovering and flying backwards under control, I reckoned I'd seen everything. Another smashingly good plain tales and speaking of harrier i've noticed your face captain nick uh, harry is quite harry. harrier than it was last week not just a clever plain tales oh, uh, title then huh? oh god <laughs> <laughs> at least it's not hovering no it's just slowly coming back slowly coming back um i love the fact that uh uh sopwith the man who built the designer built the Sopwith Camel and all those lovely World War One airplanes was still alive when the Harrier started flying. I find that amazing. Isn't that yeah. fantastic? That is amazing. Yeah, what a life he lived from uh, designing those amazing World War One airplanes to seeing uh, an aircraft like that. So I understand that the uh, Harrier was quite challenging to pilot. Well, it did kill an awful lot of guys. I mean, seriously, uh, the the accident rate is was pretty horrendous, both in the yeah, American forces and the RAF. An awful lot of accidents, uh, and, it, and mainly its peacetime uh, loss rate was the, the bit that used to make people's eyes water. You know, so we used to see so many. Uh, um, accident reports from it. Uh, the Americans uh, lost a third of all the aircraft they bought. That was a, a, a considerable, well, yeah, a considerable number of airframes, uh, which is why it was questioned as to whether it had been a suitable airplane for them. But the Marines seemed to like it. So, yeah, we uh, when I was in the Air Force uh, in the early mid '80s, uh, there was some kind of a tropical storm slash hurricane somewhere threatening airplanes that were stationed near the water, wherever the hurricane was coming in. And uh, there was um, a Harrier pilot that brought his Harrier into Columbus Air Force Base, Mississippi, to seek, you know, uh, shelter from the storm. And it was there for a while, and I was able to talk to the uh, pilot of the uh, machine because at that time I was working for Wing Safety, and we were stationed in the uh, base operations building where, you know, people coming in to visit a base would... Uh, park their airplane nearby and do all the flight planning, fuel planning and that kind of thing. And uh, he was talking about uh, Chuck Yeager. And he said that uh, normally this airplane is very, very difficult to learn to fly, especially in the hovering mode. Or, Well, I, I apologize. I guess it doesn't hover based on your plane tails title. <laughs> but um, in that mode where it's not moving very quickly in a uh, lateral fashion or forward and backwards fashion, and uh, he said that uh, Chuck Yeager came to fly one, one of their two-seat models, and he got in and almost immediately was able to, you know, fly the airplane without a, an issue at all. And he said that just showed you what talent that guy had. Um, he said it, it wasn't the, gifted, you know. It was very, very Flatting. gifted. I guess he wasn't a very socially gifted um, person or isn't. I guess he's still with us. Um, but, uh, because there, there are several things that he has said and quoted as saying, 
that most people kind of go, huh? What? Did you really say that? But uh, apparently his pilot skills are just amazing. Oh, sure. I mean, uh, the, the loss rate it has to be compared with the fact that most Air Forces that operated only allowed their their highest or best qualified students to learn to fly it. And they they basically were the cream of the crop, the Harrier pilots, yet still they had a very high loss rate. Um, uh, yeah, it, 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 the hardest thing actually was not hovering it. And uh, the, the, the title was really more about the bird it was named after. Um, Hawker Sidley named it after a bird called the falcon, which does hover. The uh, Harrier, the Hen Harrier and the Marsh Harrier that we have in the UK, the bird that the Air Force named it after, doesn't hover at all. (laughs) (laughs) I always thought it was poorly named. That was uh, my only, (laughs) I don't know who came up with that one. But he obviously didn't know much about uh, his his, uh, nature uh, or the nature of birds. But uh, no, the, the aircraft did hover very well. In fact, it wasn't uh, the hovering bit that was generally the problem. So long as you uh, had it into wind, um, that it, that was quite easy. It was actually the uh, the landing um, uh, at full speed. You know, if you couldn't move the nozzles, for example, uh, and you had to do a completely conventional landing. Apparently, that was a bit of a nightmare. I mean, the approach speed was over 160 knots, and uh, the aircraft was initially very tail-heavy, and then you had to get it to sit on the main wheel, um, and it had a tendency, uh, having got been tail-heavy, then to uh, rotate forward and hit the nose wheel first uh, as you slowed to land. Uh, and it just really was apparently uh, quite a handful putting it down uh, at full speed. So uh, that that was a difficult bit. Uh, it very rarely took off vertically. It just didn't have the performance to do that once it was hung with full fuel and full, full weapons. They invariably did a, uh, a stall takeoff. So uh, the one I described, or as they did on the ships, they, they built those ramps to help launch them into the air, which worked quite well. Very cool. Excellent job again. Thank you, sir, for doing that for us. Oh, thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. More audio feedback. Hello, crew. Hello, community. It's Paul over in the UK. Um, I'm not in the industry and I don't fly privately, so I do an awful lot more listening than I, than I could ever do um, useful talking. However, this is one of those times when I can add something to the debate, although it is a bit dubious, if I'm being honest. Um Captain Nick was recently talking about um, units in, in his plain tales and, and, and the various units and standardization and some of the obscure units um, in use in the industry. Um, and in passing, he mentioned um, a unit called a barleycorn, which is a third of an inch. Um, and I just wondered if he knew that that, that unit is actually in regular daily use uh, in both the US and the UK as it is the difference between one shoe size and the next next size up. Um, so, yeah, it dates back to 1300s and is still in regular use today, although not many people would ever call it a barleycorn. They, they just use that, that, that unit. Um, and then secondly, um, I, I was recently on a holiday forum where somebody was talking about travelling from the US to the UK um, on an Acme Red overnight flight on New Year's Eve, and they were asking, would the pilots announce anything, or where would they announce everything, anything? 
um, would they celebrate it, etc. So I thought that ties in, and I know just the man to ask. So yeah, Nick, what would you do um, on an overnight flight on New Year? Would you would you do anything, or would you just ignore it? Um, and then finally, um, there's an, another podcast I'd like to point people in the direction of. Um, just a single episode of a podcast called The Eye of the Storm from um, the BBC. I'll, I'll, I'll stick the link um, in the email to Captain Jeff that he can put it in the show notes if, if, if he likes. Um, and what they do there is they take some person who is a, a normal everyday person suddenly thrust into the public spotlight um, and then basically after the event, after it's all over, they, they sit them down and say, what was that like? Um, and this particular episode is, is Captain Sullenberger. Um, so obviously that is of interest to um, listeners of this podcast. So I just thought I'd mention that as well. Um, so, yeah, thanks for everything. It's a, a delight to listen every week. Talons, Douglas. <laughs> Paul, it's, it's a delight to hear from people like you, especially audio feedback. Thanks for taking the time to send that in. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll just quickly uh, mention that he uh, talked about Captain Sully interview from this uh, podcast on the BBC.com. And he said when he sent this on, what day was this? The 18th. August 18th. Uh, it was available for 23 days. So uh, I guess we have to subtract. And I don't know. If, about I wonder 11. if it's available here in the U.S. Or I don't know. I didn't try world. it. I didn't try it either. But nonetheless. Yeah. I'll, Assuming link will be in the show notes. Yep, I'll put that in the show notes. And so you're traveling uh, in flight, and uh, it's New Year's Eve. Nick, what do you do? He's going to have a toast of champagne. Yes. (laughs) Exactly right. You can hear the Um, the cork (laughs) popping. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, it's not like we're on an exciting holiday flight. Uh, Usually it's uh, we carry a lot of business people who are uh, just trying to get from A to B, and uh, they – you know, they're perhaps not too interested in finding out exactly. Um, it is possible, of course, to celebrate, uh, you know, uh, more than one new year um, because uh, although going from New York to London, that doesn't work. You've just got to work out where the one If you're coming the other way, you can uh, usually have more than one because, of course, America um, is a little bit behind the U.K., um, so you can have uh, you can celebrate the UK one, you can celebrate the one uh, over the ground you're at, and you can celebrate the New York one if, if uh, the timing's right uh, for your flight. Um, so uh, uh, the you can calculate what the local time is. Uh, it's uh, uh, every 15 degrees you've travelled across the Earth's surface, the uh, your clock should move one hour. Um, course if you're over land you have to look down at the local time that they've decided for that country and decide what that is um, do i actually declare it uh, i i try to take the feel from the way the passengers are behaving so i asked the cabin crew uh have we got a you know is everyone awake uh, are people um you know looking forward to it are they they looking at their watches to try and work it out and if that's the case, if I get the feeling that the majority of the aircraft would like to celebrate, then yes, of course, I'll, I'll make a PA and, uh, and work out a suitable time um, for, uh, you know, uh, 
either usually where we are. So when, as we go through midnight local time, halfway through the flight, I'll do it, uh, make a PN account there and that sort of thing. And the girls will run around with some a little spot of champagne for everyone. Um, but um, generally speaking, in my experience, most of the flights I've been on, nah, everyone's fast asleep. They're really not too worried about it. So uh, we might uh, make a little fuss of it at the beginning of the flight but by that time, uh, you know, once everyone puts their heads down, gets a bit quiet, then uh, it's not really worth waking them all up. I will say one of the um, neatest flights I took, just from a holiday standpoint, I flew from Charlotte to Dublin, I think it was 2012, but it was um, on July 4th. And I think actually the 4th was the next day, but most of the towns and cities were doing their uh, fireworks that evening because of whatever day of the week it was. I forget, must have been a, a weekend before the, the the start of the work week. But it was a nice clear night. And as we were flying basically up the, just off of the coast of the US, of the Eastern United States, um, you could see all of the different fireworks displays. And that was really neat. So no one ever pointed it out um, from the flight deck or anything else, but they were for anyone who was... Who was, yeah, they were sleeping. <laughs> For anyone who was awake and, and watching, it was kind of a neat uh, way to view fireworks. So. Have you ever been airborne uh, for New Year's Eve, Jeff? I don't think so. And uh, this always reminds me of when you talk about fireworks from the air. It always reminds me when I was flying up to Toronto years ago at night. Um, and it was before the 4th of July. And all of a sudden, I'm looking all over the place at all these fireworks going off. And apparently, what is it? The first of July is Canada Day. Is that right? We have uh, some yes, Canadians. it is. My son was born on Canada Day. Okay, so, <laughs> but we're going like, what? What's going on? Uh, it's not the fourth of July. And then finally, somebody <laughs> said it's you know Canada Day or whatever. And I went, oh, that Ooh. makes sense. So apparently, they they celebrate in a very similar manner. Um, but it was very pretty to see all those uh, displays from above uh, lighting up the ground. And uh, I can't wait to uh, next time I go to get a, a new sh- a pair of shoes to say, you know, I think I need one barley corn um, bigger for this one right here. I don't think the U.S. uses that measurement. It's just. Oh, the, okay. Yeah. But They'll I mean, just you look could, at me like, huh? What? I think you should do it anyway. I'll do it anyway. Just to yeah. see how I, I'm guessing he's he means that the when we buy a 45 or something in the UK that's 45 bonicons, i.e., 45 one thirds of an inch, uh, which would be your size 15 inches. Uh, That'd be a big shoe, yeah, but wow. um, big feet, yeah. You know, they say about people with big feet, no. <laughs> uh, oh, okay. let's see, stay away from. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they say a lot of things, that's for sure. Yeah, big feet, big hands. Uh, Paul, thank you very much for uh, the audio feedback again. And uh, we continue on with uh, Dave alerting us to something. Uh says, just wanted to let everyone know on Saturday, September 9th, is the 2017 Newark, New Jersey Airline Show held at the Ramada Plaza, Newark Liberty Airport on Frontage Road in Newark, admission. Children under 12 get in free. Open from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Also, there's a store called the Airplane Shop. And uh, let's see, Stewart Place, Fairfield, New Jersey. That's not not fair, Jeff. I'm landing in Newark on the 9th. Uh And they they live close. When I get in, I don't land till about 7. 
so I won't be able to go there. Oh, well. The that's airline shop is open on, well, that's the 8th and 9th. Maybe they're closed on the 10th. Yeah, that means uh, I'm not going to be able to buy some more Airbus models. Well, Dave, thanks for letting everybody know. Unfortunately, uh, Nick can't take advantage of it. But uh, he also mm -hmm. wrote in saying, well, if you can't make this one on the 9th of September, there's the Los Angeles Airliners and Transportation Expo on the 16th of September. Uh, the SFO Airline Memorabilia Show on the 30th of September. And uh, Toronto Airline Collectible Show in October, October 1st. Atlanta Airline Collectible Show, Saturday, October 7th. Are there people that collect airlines? I don't quite understand these. Yeah, well, you know, you gotta, you have to have a lot of money to do it. But, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Minneapolis Airline Collectible Show and Get Together, October 14th. He's got a long list of these things. So I'll put all these in the show notes so you can see if you're in any of the uh, four aforementioned places and uh houston of course i'm not sure if that one's going to go off without a hitch i'm not sure by november hopefully they'll have everything recovered there uh chicagoland frankfurt um and that's frankfurt germany and heathrow aircraft enthusiasts fair on november 26th so that thank, one i could go to probably yeah so thank you dave from new jersey uh we'll put all that information in the show notes for folks to check out um ian also uh wrote in to tell us that he went to the edmonton air show uh this past weekend i think he sent this on the 20th so whatever weekend that was um about a week and a half ago and he took some photography or he took some pictures and he sent us a link to iangriffinphotography.com and i'll put that link in the show notes as well so you can check out all the fine photo photographs that he snapped or took while he was there at the Edmonton air show. Thank really you. nice photos, by the way, Ian. Yeah. Looking through them right now. Very nice. Awesome. Yep. Very talented. Um, while we're kind of in this vein, um, I don't know why it reminded me of this, but Ivan sent in um, this. He, his feedback is, um, you know, we talk about the mad dog, the airplane that uh, Dana and I fly and the Boeing 717, a.k.a. MD-95, is also referred to as an angry puppy. And uh, he sent in a photograph of an angry puppy taking runway 26 at Kilo Charlie Mike Alpha. That's Camarillo, California. You, you, have, to, you have to look at this photo. It's, it's uh, an amazing photograph of an angry puppy. Although the, the puppy doesn't look angry Lizzie to me. doesn't look too angry. No. It's a little puppy. Lizzie looks pretty cute. On a runway. <laughs> Has anyone ever really seen an angry puppy? Do puppies get angry? I've never seen an angry puppy. No. Yeah. They only pretend angry and they gnash, gnash, gnash with those nasty pointy teeth. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, sorry, didn't mean to skip around, folks. Um, Mark in Ottawa writes, hello, Captain Jeff and crew. Two things. First, and most exciting for me, I passed my private pilot test yesterday. Yay! Yay! Good job, Corbin. It took just over a year from start to finish and was one of That's the most... a long test. Yeah, <laughs> it's a They're long very test. enthusiastic. Wow. wow. A year. I guess the Canadians, uh, you know, they don't fool around. <laughs> anyway, it, just, it took just over a year from start to finish and was one of the most difficult things I've tackled in years, but also one of the most worthwhile. I came out of the flight test with a license, but also the examiner's comments that I was a safe pilot 
which of course is the ultimate goal. I'm already old, no need to be bold. I'm told it rarely ends for uh, ends well for pilots when they're mixed. That is true. I was listening to episode 285 and the interesting discussion about Air Canada and the loss of data from the flight recorders from the San Francisco event. The editorial you read lamented that Air Canada and or the FAA did not voluntarily pull the jet from service or preserve the flight recorder data after the incident. They called it a, quote, bureaucratic cover-up. However, as you pointed out, there was no need to preserve anything because there was no accident according to the regulations, regulations as currently written. Companies operate according to the laws or regulations they're subject to. Here's an example that happens every day. In the banking industry, some documents must be kept specific periods of time, some for seven years. On seven years plus one day, expired documents are shredded digitally if they are electronic because with the expiration of the legal obligation to keep the document, it has suddenly become a legal liability for the bank. If they're sued, they would be required to turn over any document they have, expired or not. This is the exact same scenario, data retention according to regulation, that happened with Air Canada. I'm not saying it's a good thing, I'm just suggesting that instead of blaming the company for not exceeding what the regulations say they have to do, the regulation should be changed. And again, that's Mark from Ottawa. Uh, Good point made, sir. And again, congratulations on getting your private pilot license. Mm -hmm. Oh, and Mark, (laughs) it was um, an episode or two back, he uh, wrote in and said that he was an APG sufferer or APG syndrome sufferer. And he, uh, APG sufferers book row 30 on the mad dog. And I said, that's kind of crazy. But he said, well... This is why. Listen to that sound of the Pratt and Whitney. Nice. So, actually, this is a video that he took. And he showed us the vantage point uh, from sitting at row 30. And actually, I understand, you know, Mark, you're right. It's a great place to be on the jet if you enjoy that engine noise. <laughs> and because you're just forward of the, of the nacelle, of the, uh, in this case, it was on the right-hand side of the aircraft. And you have a beautiful, you're behind the uh, trailing edge of the wing. So you get to see... The wing and the flaps and the slats and the and the spoilers and all that kind of stuff, all the action out there on the wing, and also the uh, the engine. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. But did he also have his uh, app that measures the decibel level while he's sitting right there? Huh? What? Included in the video? <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, no, well, he didn't. Uh, that would have been interesting to see exactly what the decibel uh, level was. I guess it means you don't have to talk to your annoying uh, fellow passengers. Perfect. Book me in that seat every time. <laughs> it's just one of those days for Steph. Yes, that's the one I want. Yes. <laughs> it's funny. Sometimes, you know, you, you do everything you can to indicate that you have no desire to talk to anybody. You put your headphones on or, all, you know. You're reading or just like Yeah, people are still eyes. trying to talk to you. I don't you know, want to you, talk you, to you. You fold your arms like this, like a very closed posture <laughs> person next to you is to like so do you live here are you on vacation where are you going my name is such and such i have grandchildren would you like to see all the photos i have of? oh yes i'd love to to. (laughs) 
Yay. Oh, boy. I love people, by the way. I like we talking to perfectly yes, random strangers seated next to me on aircraft <laughs> for five hours at a time. Yes. So um, G-Man writes in. I, apparently, I butchered his name. That's G-L-A-U-C-U-S. And I said Glaucus. I have no idea how that's actually pronounced. That's what I would have said. So. Uh, but he said uh, at the end of this, I love the way you tried to pronounce my name, Captain Jeff. But to make things simple, just call me G. In another email he sent, he said G-Man. I have more versions of my name that I can remember, so I'll, I'll save you the effort of creating another one. <laughs> so apparently G-Man. I didn't get it quite, quite right. We like audio feedback of people telling us how to pronounce their name. You're right. So. We do. Yeah, good point. Mm-hmm. And he's from Sydney, Australia. So, oh, wait. Glaucus. No, I can't do an Australian <laughs> accent. I have no idea how to do that. <laughs> Just offended every Australia that listened. No, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, well, I am offensive. <laughs> Hope you are uh, well, all well, and keeping busy. I would like to send you some feedback about a flight I recently took from Sydney to SCL. Santiago. Oh, thank you. Is it? I probably. I think, yeah. Uh, I have to look. It's got to be a long flight because he was on a Qantas 747 Yeah, I think it's Santiago. Okay. This is one of the remaining six of their fleet, which will be phased out within the next two years. It's rather a sad feeling given the fact that Qantas or QF, I guess that's Qantas, has flown 747s almost from their release and have a remarkable history with them. I know that Captain Nick is very vocal about how old the 747 is, but on this trip, I had the opportunity to walk around the cabin, chat to the crew and some of the pilots, which were four in total, and and though despite having flown 747s for most of my life, it gave me a sense of nostalgia. This amazing machine was a pioneer of wide-body flying, it has designed, uh, and its design opened doors to a market that was rather restricted, and it flies until today. Which other aircraft had the same? Which other aircraft had the same longevity? Allied to the spotless maintenance QF is well known for and so proud of, the aircraft passes a sense of surety and safety despite its age. Uh, this particular one was deployed in 2000. It reminded me of my early days when I used to go out with my grandpa for a car ride. Granted, he wasn't the best driver in the world and his car wasn't the latest model, but I always I always felt safe and enjoyed every minute of each of our journeys, always coming back safe and sound with a smile on my face. Probably next time I take the same route, it'll be on a 787 or an A330, which is a reasonable plane, especially on QF's excellent business class seats, but I'm a Boeing guy, which will somehow make me feel sad and miss the queen of the skies, taking me across the Pacific on an effortless and pleasant journey. We are very lucky to live at a time we managed to, wit- uh, let's see, we are very lucky to live at a time we managed to witness the evolution of air travel, see it becoming a way of mass transportation, and watch the marvels it achieves in terms of technology enhancements every day. We should always look ahead, but we should never forget where we came from, and the 747 is the link between old and new in the aviation world. Long live the Queen, at least in our fond memories. Blue skies, tailwinds, and God bless. G-Man. <laughs> ah, very nice. Uh, he's definitely a proponent of Boeing and the beautiful 747. Mm-hmm. He did He did at least admit that the A330 is a reasonable It's a reasonable flight. airplane, don't you think, Captain Nick? It's he's a high compliment kinda, for Airbus. Just, I, I can just see, it looks like Nick is, uh, he's got his mouth closed. I think he's biting his lip. He wrote a tongue. very nice piece. It would be a shame for me to break both. 
a lot of uh, a lot of restraint going on. Yes. Thank yes. You. Um. Well, we'll move on then before Nick changes his mind. Uh, Phil says, "Hi, APG crew. I start IOE at my first Part One Twenty One job in a couple of weeks. Again, that requires some applause. Here we go." Yay. Yay! Way to go, Phil. I O E. Initial initial operating experience. Yeah, thank you. I should uh, I should define that for people. In other words, it's like you've completed training, and now you're going to actually go out there and fly on the airplane with people, passengers, uh, with a line check airman, and uh, you're going to do that for at least one, usually two trips, two maybe three day trips, something like that. I'll be flying out of uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul, mostly to quieter Midwestern cities, although I will be doing several ATL trips. My question is mainly targeted towards Captain Jeff and First Officer Dana. Do you have any tips for flying into Hartsfield? I want to avoid seeming too inexperienced on the arrivals, radios, etc. Um, tips, and, and Captain Nick can answer this as well, because you fly into uh, the ATL occasionally. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. Uh, I it's mean, terrifying. <laughs> just, you know, it's one of those places where you go and you, you just do whatever they tell you to do. That's pretty much it. You know, you don't, yeah. there's not a lot of thinking outside of the box there. It's not like you go, you know what? I'm thinking my distance from the runway right now, I'm going to go ahead and just slow down to 210 knots or 180 knots. You don't, no, 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 no. You don't have, I can always, I can always tell I'm with somebody new and they start, they start pulling the power back and setting in a new speed. And I'm going, uh, did they tell us to slow down to 180? No. Oh, well then don't do that. <laughs> Trust me. You don't, no, do, no, no. you don't do that no, no, on no. your own. They'll start yelling at us if you do that. No, no, no. Uh, so yeah, just don't, uh, do any of that kind of stuff. Uh, if you're going into a small Midwestern airport and you're the only one out there in the pattern, you know, you know, knock yourself silly with, uh, doing all that, uh, pilot stuff, but, uh, in Atlanta, <laughs> you know, just, uh, you, you just get to play a pilot here. You yeah, do what we tell you. Yeah. Exactly. Um, now, my, my, uh, my advice would be brief, uh, at least four runways <laughs> and be confident that you won't land on any of them. <laughs> Now you only need to brief three because that's usually the maximum number that we use for landing. But you know, I guess it wouldn't hurt to brief four <laughs> or five. <laughs> Why not? Just go for all of them. Yeah, that's true. And yeah. you've got it covered. Uh, yeah, because he's right. It's it's one of the, you know, the arrival procedures we have now in the notes. It'll say if you're landing to the west and you're using this arrival, expect that this is the runway you're going to be assigned. But there's no guarantee that it's going to be the runway you get. So it does help to brief at least two of the possibilities of the runways. But um, yeah, that's a good point. Well, I've not flown myself into Atlanta Hartsfield, but just looking at the sheer number of different frequencies, once you're even on the ground, is, yeah. I mean, that alone is terrifying. It's like, whoa, okay. So, yeah. so you got to really be paying attention to where you're going and who you're talking to and, you know, and, but it's just preparation and yeah. it's no different than anything else. Just do what they ask you to do. And you can always ask for clarification. Yes. Yeah, and D- Dixie is a taxiway, not a way of whistling. Yeah, and that's I still scratch my head on that, and I've been doing this for more than 28 years in and out of Atlanta, and we're the only airport in the world that calls taxiway Delta taxiway Dixie. And somebody explained to me, well, because we don't want people to be confused that they're talking to a Delta flight. And I'm thinking, well, then why 
don't they change the name of all these D taxiways everywhere else we fly so we don't get confused? Well, We're never confused they when they say Taxiway pick, Delta. <laughs> pick a different letter of the alphabet or give it two letters of the alphabet. Like, you know, the, like just get rid of the whole Dixie nonsense and yeah. call well, it you know what? totally different. Now with all the statues and everything else going, I'm sure that <laughs> I'm pretty sure that Dixie's probably going to be gone soon as well. So probably anyway. Yeah. Uh, so it was, Steph makes a very good point. Just familiarize yourself with all the different frequency changes you're going to do. You know, as soon as you go off the runway, uh, well, you know, in a controlled way, uh, and they tell you to contact ground control. <laughs> Screaming, uh, careening. Yeah. Into if you're just going off the runway uh, and you didn't intend to, then you have other things to worry about. But uh, so when you're, you know, switching over to ground control, there's a north south north and south ground control frequency, and then know which ramp you're going to. Don't tell them what gate you're going to. Tell them which ramp, and then uh, make sure you have that ramp frequency up uh, in your in your other radio. And when you make the transmission. You know, we're at two south or three south for gate, whatever it is. Uh, make sure that you transmit on the ramp frequency and not guard. A lot of people tend to use guard frequency. Really? <laughs> yeah, because they forgot to, they, they forgot flip, to the flip the switch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and then also when you're when you're uh, ask, calling for pushback, they want you to say you know your your gate number and what your uh, departure is, uh, and that way they know which runway uh, you're going to be going to and which way to push back. And uh, yeah, that's all I can think of right off the top of my head. Preparation is uh, important. What, what's he going to be flying, do you think? Uh, he said it's um, a 121, but a small airplane, so an RJ, CRJ. Okay. Uh, CRJ, so, he says, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, we, we, we have a number of uh, wingspan restrictions. So oh, yeah, you don't have to worry about that with his. Well, you don't have to worry about those. <laughs> we do, but anyway. Yeah. Yeah, the big boys, they need to worry about wingspan limitations, various taxiways and routes you can't take. But um, And there are speed limitations also for the uh, wingspans greater than 115 feet or whatever. Um, yeah, because of course the faster you go, the bigger your wings. Exactly, because they'll start stretching. Yes, they the, do, yeah. In the air. <laughs> if you exceed 15 knots, they get bigger. <laughs> apparently i don't understand that yeah, it's, it's physics in atlanta you just yeah. <laughs> don't ask why just do it yeah. <laughs> that's actually the best advice don't ask why I, just do it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. yeah i've learned that it's taken me 22 years but i've learned that <laughs> yeah you just adopt my uh, blissful ignorance uh, philosophy nick you're much happier yeah, I, I, I'm going that way fast. <laughs> so, How, many How many days until retirement? How many days until retirement? Not that you're counting. Yeah. 700 and some odd days, I think. 740 today. 740. Yeah. I right. remember. Yeah, well done. Good. Very well done. Um, Fitz James uh, writes in and says, Hey, APG crew, it's been forever since I've sent him feedback, but I wanted to answer the question that Jonathan asked in episode 286 about uh, kilo... Tango Alpha Papa large airliners. Does, he means Tampa, right? Means TBA. Tampa. Okay, that was a little yeah. listexia on his part. Um, Lufthansa still flies an Airbus A340-300 regular, regularly to Tampa. I've included a picture I took of one in March 2016 at Fitz the Spotter and a link to my same photo being used in the uh, Kilo Tango Papa Alpha Wikipedia page. Oh, neat. Uh, on the Wikipedia page for... Tampa International is um, a photo that Fitz James took. That's cool. Um, we'll put that link in the show notes. Thank you for the awesome show, guys. And then uh, we have a picture there of that 
it's not a bad looking airplane. I think the 600 definitely is better looking. It's longer and has a, the the engines are bigger, so it looks more in proportion. But uh, it's not a bad photo of that. Uh, it's kind of 707, mm-hmm. uh, you know, look alike really, and it? it doesn't have that boom on the top of the fin that the 70 had, which I always thought was a Pito probe, and turns out it's an HF aerial. Oh, hmm. okay. Yeah. Learn something every day, right? You do. Yeah. Well, thank you, Fitzjames, and um, we'll uh, we'll good to hear from you again, and we'll put all those uh, links in the show notes. And uh, we mentioned uh, PR as one of the uh, Coffee Fund cadre members. Uh, he gave us a nice um, Coffee Fund contribution. And you don't have to give us a contribution to get your feedback played on this show, but it doesn't hurt, that's for sure. No, I'm just kidding. Um, dear Captains Nick, Jeff, Dana, and Steph, I'm a 46-year-old management professional who was selected for the Air Force in 1991 but couldn't join due to, to a family bereavement. I became a private pilot when I moved to the U.S. in 1999 and owned a little Cessna 150 for many years. I now live back in my home country, India, where I haven't been able to fly because hobby flying is rare. My dad was an Air Force fighter pilot and experimental test pilot trained at the RAF's ETPS in 1962. What does that stand for, Nick? Empire Test Pilot School. Oh, who rose to Air Marshal and Vice Chief. So you can imagine flying has been a lifelong passion and a frequent topic at the dinner table. Motivated by you folks to get to the other side of the cockpit door, I've quit my job, and next week I'm flying to Napa, California to complete my instrument multi and commercial ratings. I hope to return to India and apply for whatever sort of flying job I get. Wish me luck. Better to have tried and failed than to have not made the attempt at all. Cheerio! Well, again, good luck, guns. guns. Seriously, good luck. Guns. I couldn't agree more with that statement. Try and fail, then not try at all. I'm just amazed at how many people we have writing to us that uh, say, you know what? Gosh darn it, I want to do what you guys do, and so I'm just going to drop everything that I'm doing so far and just, I mean, that takes so much so much courage and and uh, passion and guts. Uh, and I'm, I'm always amazed to see how many people um, do that or are willing to make that gamble. And I, uh, I'm glad to see it. it. It gives me, makes me smile. Yeah. No exaggeration Absolutely. here. People who, who follow their dreams are some of my personal heroes. So, because I think the world needs more people like that. Well, at uh, 46, he's still got 19 years left uh, before he would need to retire. That's it would be quite a reasonable career. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, that's as long as I was in the Air Force. So, uh, yeah, well, good luck with that. I hope it goes well for you. And India, I think, is one of those places where, you know, being a fully qualified pilot is a good thing, that you shouldn't have any trouble at all finding employment there. No, no, there there are an awful lot of low-cost carriers and uh, airlines uh, popping up in there, so I expect you'll uh, be uh, well in demand. Yes. So PR, Guns, his nickname, please keep us surprised as to your progress uh, in this journey because it's going to be inspirational for everyone listening. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. That's that's awesome. And uh, finally in my folder here, I'm going to go ahead and uh, do this with uh, Brian. Um, oh, I should rephrase that. I'm going to read Brian's feedback. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, hey, APG crew. My name is Brian, and I've been listening for well over a year now. 
Not sure how many old episodes I've gone back through, but it's a lot. Even more, even some carpool buddies got subjected to the APG virus, but they didn't develop the syndrome. Weird. Anyway, started listening to your show as a way to get an idea of what actual airline pilot life is like and if it would suit me or not. I've always loved aviation, but have been hesitant to dive in because a lot of pilots' personalities seemed a bit robotic. I don't know what you're talking about. Neither do I. Let's move on to the Please. next piece Quickly. of feedback. I don't like this. <laughs> Warning, Professor Robinson. Warning. Warning. <laughs> <laughs> Your show has obliterated that misconception for me, and I've started on my PPL 23 hours as of 8 17 so thank you for your work. Now, you'll notice today is the 29th, so he sent this in today. Wow. wow. <laughs> Shocking. Are we nearly caught up or what? Well, you know, so I, I kind of picked here and there, uh, but almost. Anyway, so thank you for your work. Anyway, I have a couple of questions. First, I've noticed that call a cruise call positive rate just before they put the landing gear up. I'm wondering why they use that rate, vertical speed, I'm assuming, instead of a given altitude, say pattern altitude or 500 feet or something. Secondly, I'm wondering uh, about aircraft power plants. In the automotive world, a steep hill or a heavy trailer or a snow plow are all things that make the engine work harder to achieve a given speed. Sometimes we refer to this situation as lugging or bogging down. Is there anything equivalent for an aircraft? I know you can change the pitch on a variable pitch propeller, but that's all I can think of. The weight of the airplane and the rate of climb shouldn't make a difference, should they? Anyway, thanks for a great show. I learn a lot and enjoy it. I wish I could get an FAR AIM written by you guys. <laughs> yeah, don't hold your breath there. 51% accurate. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but half the stuff here is probably Good right. Luck passing your right on that. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> right now, I'm following your Java Jive instructions to use my money for flying lessons. But once I'm done, I'm done with my PPL. You can expect to see me in the cadre. Thanks again, Brian. Thanks again, Goodbye. Brian. Yeah, awesome. Goodbye. That's a uh, again some uh, inspirational feedback. And uh, so, what do you say there, Captain Nick? Regarding why is it that we now you what do you, you guys don't say positive rate? You say something like positive climb. Uh, no, we say positive rate. Okay, because I've noticed I, I've seen some videos on YouTube and some other foreign carriers that say they don't say positive rate but that's what we say here in the US they say something different uh, but it's the same thing um, and why do we do that well we need to make sure that we're actually moving away from the ground so it's safe to lift the gear we don't want to wait to uh, too long because it's a lot of drag on the airplane and if we lose an engine we want to get rid of that drag we don't want it there so uh, we just need to confirm that the airplane's going up and I'm assuming your system is the same as our, Jeff. Once we get indications on two instruments that the aircraft is climbing, then you can call uh, positive rate. So for us, so uh, well, for my, me, I look at the radar and the rate of climb and descent. Uh, and I'm the which is right beside the altimeter. So actually, honestly, I'm looking at the mm -hmm. pressure altimeter and the radar as well to make sure they're both uh, showing the aircraft climbing. And then I uh, make the call. Yeah, you can't rely completely on the VSI, the vertical speed indication, because a lot of times, even though some of these things say instantaneous, they're not. And there's a lag. Yeah, yeah. there's a lag. Well, uh, yeah, ours is really a sort of uh, um, it's it's trend. more a gyro, yeah. It, right. It's not a it's not a pure pressure instrument. So it, it being instantaneous, it works off the inertials. So mm -hmm. 
it is pretty much uh, an indication that you're moving away. There's, you're not likely to be lured by it. Ours, but we it, have to. We, we kind of like, we have to rely upon the uh, barometric altimeter to see a um, actual climb on the barometric altimeter. Cool. But we're also cool. looking at the VVI as well, or the VSI. Yes. And uh, yeah, it's it's good to have at least two, maybe three different indications that you were at. even looking outside. You can usually tell when you're looking outside that you're actually climbing away from the ground. Um, but as you said, you know, it's very important to get that drag reduced as quickly as you can, but you don't want to do it before you're climbing because then you could be back on the ground again. Absolutely. That's exactly Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, now this one about bogging or bogging down or lugging um, aircraft power plants. Um, I don't, I don't know if that directly relates to an engine that is, directly applying its torque or power against something physical like or that has a lot of friction like the ground or water uh i guess air has a lot less friction i don't know but still i maybe i'm not quite understanding the question that he's asking here you know he's asking about something that would make the engine work harder to achieve a given speed so certainly weight drag Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, all those four forces affecting flight. Um, you know, if you're trying to climb at a steeper rate, you're not going to get the same speed for the same amount of power that the engine is uh, putting out, or if you're heavier, or if you have more drag, so the gear is down, you have flaps out, something like that. And you will notice those things as you're flying. And um, it's a little bit harder to notice in something like a Cessna 172, but I guarantee if you take off and leave the flaps out for a long time, you'll notice it on. Um, you know, if you're trying to climb or if you're trying to climb at a pretty steep um, rate or a steeper rate than normal, you'll notice that you're not going to gain the airspeed that you need. Um, so, yeah, it, maybe it's not directly the same as in a car or a truck or a boat. Um, you're still going to have those forces affecting uh, the amount of speed that you're able to achieve. And I think that's the question that he was asking. Okay. Yeah, that makes so. sense. I mean, you, uh, we all are familiar with, uh, especially in the airline world, where uh, you're very heavily loaded and it is a very hot day. So your performance is not very good. And, and just throw in a high density altitude, perhaps the mm-hmm. elevation of the airport. Yep. And the uh, engines are putting out as much power as you can get from them. And your rate of climb uh, initially, yeah, it's just like, come on, like- let's go. <laughs> Uh, but then on the other hand, uh, coming up when the weather starts getting colder here in Atlanta in the, in the late, you know, mid to late fall, you start getting those crisper, uh, cooler temperatures. Uh, the engines just love cool air and dry air and you take off sometimes, even if you're pretty heavily loaded and the thing is just like a rocket, your VBI, mm-hmm. your rate of climb is very amazing. Especially if you're light, it's that's when you really notice it. You think, "Oh, this is what it's like to fly a 757." I bet. But uh, <laughs> anyway, um, the only thing I can think of, Jeff, is that uh, on an aircraft we um, have a drag that's on the airframe that will oppose the thrust that the engines are producing. Now that oh, drag is at a minimum when we're at a speed called the funny enough the minimum minimum drag speed which in my airplane would be about 220 30 knots now as you increase speed above that your drag increases because now you've got a lot 
of, uh, of air rushing down at the airframe there and uh, the skin is creating more drag. And also as you go below that speed, you're mm -hmm. uh, increasing your drag because now you need to increase the angle of attack. You need to create more lift from the airframe, from the wing, sorry, to uh, keep the aircraft airborne as you get slower and slower and the air's moving slower and slower, uh, which creates a lot more of a different type of uh, drag, of, uh, of lifter-dependent drag. So um, anytime you're um, on the slow side of that minimum drag speed, you're, we, we call it being on the wrong side of the drag curve. So we plot this this curve of drag on a graph and uh, it forms a U shape. Uh, and when we're on the slow side of it, what it means is that uh, if you start to slow down, you're going to need a lot more power to stabilize that speed. And the slower you get, the more power you need. And sometimes that, you reach well, a point where you're not going to have enough power unless you right. descend. Yeah. And the other, right. the other um, thing I'm thinking about that um, might be more applicable to Brian is if you or when you start working on emergency procedures and engine out procedures, especially in a single engine aircraft, you know, you're, you're going to be working on your best rate of glide or your best uh, glide speed, basically. So you want to know, um, you want to be able to maximize the amount of distance you can travel um, with your engine out to give you the most options for a suitable landing environment. And that occurs at a certain speed because below that you actually do incur more drag and it, you won't get as much glide out of your aircraft so that's kind of the same point that nick is yeah exactly the same point so that's what i would call bogging down if you get okay. on the wrong side of the drag curve and you happen to go up to full power and if necessary you haven't, you haven't got enough engines power left to stop that deceleration uh you're gonna have to stick the nose down and uh, give up some height to get that speed back so that's what i would uh, seek would be an equivalent of lugging or bogging down i don't know good point um you know many of us heard have heard the term man i'm behind the power curve and oh, a yeah. lot of people don't realize that <laughs> at least in our world that refers to what you just described at least in the power curve for a propeller driven airplane in our world as nick mentioned i forgot what you called it but we sometimes refer you call it the drag curve but we sometimes yeah. refer to it as the thrust required curve uh, because it's not technically proper to call a jet engine airplane a power curve uh, but um, it's all the same kind of thing. And uh, the drag that you were talking about above that L over, L over D max or the, uh, the best lift over drag uh, speed is uh, usually that parasite drag, I think is what that was called. And then when you get really slow or below that L over D max, it's that induced drag, the drag that's being created by the high angle of attack and the lift that you're creating. So um, it's all kinds of fun aerodynamic stuff that you get to learn about. Physics. Oh, yeah. Yes. Physics. And by the way, I, I do call positive climb. I just couldn't get okay. that call into my head there for a minute. Yeah, I thought, like, I thought I heard I, I, it wasn't specifically your airline, but I, no. I, I knew it was a. Uh, that's a standard Airbus call. Okay. Maybe that's what so, it is then. It's aircraft uh, specific positive climb. I wonder if our I guys. Guess it's what the manufacturers suggest. I don't know. Hmm. I wonder if that's what they do um, at ACME, the, the boys and girls that are flying the Airbuses. Hmm. I'll have to ask that sometime. I think we always say positive rate just in the GA world. Yeah, and that's that's all I've ever said yeah. in my entire flying career is positive rate. And, which is weird because when you're flying in an airplane that has fixed gear, <laughs> I'm always waiting for somebody to say positive rate or somebody, you know, to say gear yeah. up and it just doesn't happen because you don't need to put the gear up because it can't come up. Kind of weird. Anyway. 
All right. Great questions. Thank you, Brian, for that. And uh, let's see, what else do you say that he's going to be, uh, he's working on his private pilot license. So good luck with that. And uh, that's great. Keep us uh, up to date on your progress. Let us know how things are going. Please do. And looks like that may be all that I had in our show 287 folder, unless I skipped something. I think I got it all. No, I think you got everything. Wow. That's about time because we're getting close to that uh, three hour mark once again. So um, let's see. If you want to learn more about the program, the show, uh, head over to airlinepilotguy.com. Great website that has all kinds of information about the uh, community, the uh, crew, uh, merchandise, uh, the coffee fund. And, and it's uh, going to have a new page. It is, yes. We're working on uh, something that many people have said, you know, I'd like to be able to just go and listen to all those wonderful plane tales. And uh, our lovely Liz Piper, APG community member, has been working hard to uh, keep track of all the different plane tales episodes and where they were uh, located in the uh, actual shows. And uh, we're going to take it actually even one step further and using all that great work that she did, we're going to uh, have a special page where you can go to and listen to each of the Plain Tales episodes individually. And you can even, if you're really geeky, you can subscribe to that RSS feed and uh, have each and every one of those available on its own separate feed. So you won't have to listen to me or Steph or Dana. That's, that's the fun bit. <laughs> no, no one wants to hear <laughs> us drone on and on and right, on. Right, right, right. Just get right to the meat of the show. So we'll let you know. We're working on that. As I said, it's in its infancy, but uh, we hope to have uh, maybe by the next show, we'll be able to say, hey, check out this new page. They're all there. And uh, uh, there, there are a few there right now, but uh, we're, it's not quite ready for prime time. So uh, just uh, listen up for when that's going to be live. And uh, thanks again, Liz, for all the super hard work of having to slog through, is that a word? Slog? It is now. <laughs> through, um, slog. slog. I, I think I added an H to Slog. Make it even extra. Make it even worse. Difficult sounding. Yeah, to, uh, through all those uh, episodes to uh, hear the precise point at which uh, the, the wonderful plane tales occurred. And uh, anyway, so we uh, did, a, did a lot of the heavy lifting for us, and we do appreciate that. And let's see, we also have these apps that many of you have, uh, which uh, allow you to listen to the show, watch the show, send in feedback, and uh, also get push notifications if you have it set up properly for when we do the show recordings and when shows are released. So check that out. And uh, social media. You can find us on Twitter. Our Twitter Twitter handle is at APG Crew. Um, you can tweet at all of us there and we will hopefully get back to you, answer your questions. Um, go to www.facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. Um, stuff is posted there, not only by us, but also community members, things that are aviation related and of interest to the community. Um, I think that's it for the social media. Hello. Hello. Are you in the bathroom over there? Come on out. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan meetups and events. To get into the Slack team, please send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at HI11E1, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel at HI11E1, and see you in Slack. Thank you, Hillel. He was actually in the closet. He wasn't in the bathroom this time. Thank you.
Appreciate that. He spends a lot of time at your house. Yeah, well, you know, he likes we like hanging out together. Okay, good. <laughs> He's a little shy though. He doesn't want he doesn't want to be on the actual show when right. we're doing, you know, just just at the end. <laughs> All right. And uh, let's see. Anything else before we uh, sign off, Captain Nick? Anything? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, heading out to San Francisco in a couple of days on the 1st. So the meetup on the 2nd will be perfectly timed. And uh, then I've got a, a Newark on the 9th of the 9th. Yeah, there you go. And the 9th, that sounds familiar. 9th, uh, September, yes. September 9th. Why is that day ring a bell? Because it matches the number of the month. Oh, I know why. It's Captain Nick's birthday. <gasps> All right. Don't tell anybody, though. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, Steph, anything before we uh, close it? Um, not that I haven't already said, although we really didn't mention where Dana was on this show. Oh, that's right. People yeah. asked. So Dana, we didn't forget. Well, where is Dana? I didn't even notice you. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. He couldn't make it today. He's flying. I think today is. Yeah. It? He's working. So. Yeah. So we missed you, Dana. Next time though, he said his, his schedule this week is just crazy. We, we really do work hard to try to get all of us together at the same time during the week. But, uh, sometimes we do it and sometimes we miss in this, this case we're missing Dana. So. We'll have him here yeah. next time, I'm sure. Hopefully your uh, work day is going well and not too stressful. And you enjoy your family time later this week. So, Absolutely. And let's see, next week for me, I'm doing a four-day leaving on uh, Monday, Labor Day here in the U.S., um, ending up in Des Moines. And then Canton, Akron, the second day, the third day. I don't remember <laughs> where I'm going to be. Uh, I should probably look. Um, Sarasota on the third layover on the trip on uh, Wednesday and then back home on Thursday. So that's it for me. And uh, for now, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Good day. I used to be such a good, good pilot till I started APG. I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline, not a guy I fly Cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy I fly
It ain't Boeing, I ain't going. Statements, views, and opinions expressed on the Airline Pilot Guy podcast may not represent the views, opinions, or policies of any airline, real or fictionalized, mentioned, implied, or accidentally slipped by any of the participants, guests, or feedback providers you may or may not have heard, may or may not believe you may have heard, on this or any prior episode of the Airline Pilot Guy podcast.